Chapter 14, January 19th, 2021. There once was a stock that put to sea. The name of the stock was GME. The price blew up and the shorts dipped down. Hold, my bully boys, hold. Soon may the tendy man come to send our rocket into the sun. One day, when the trading is done, we'll take our gains and go. Jeremy's eyes were closed, his bare feet tapping against the carpet beneath his desk, as the image of a three-masted sailing vessel set against a black background undulated in perfect rhythm to the sea shanty that he'd already set to memory, even though he'd only stumbled upon the post, dropped onto Wall Street bets by a user calling himself or herself Quigon Shin that very morning. It was no wonder that the Tendi Man was fast going viral among the growing Reddit army. Jeremy himself was fighting the urge to click over to the meme and listen to it for the hundredth time, and if he hadn't been on a date that very moment, he would have given in to the urge. To be fair, describing Jeremy's latest attempt to make a connection with a human of the opposite sex as a date would be an extreme act of creative license. Even if the engagement hadn't involved Zoom, and a crappy wireless connection on her side running headlong into his obvious preoccupation with the other windows still open on his laptop, particularly Wall Street Bets and his trading account, it still would have been going poorly. Jeremy had also been fairly competent at dating. Especially in the physical world, he'd become a master at decrypting the signs that a date wasn't going well. He was able to read the cues like he was cracking his own personal da Vinci code. Little things, like the way his date's phone would somehow end up on the table next to her dinner so she could see the texts popping up from her friends or the way she'd searched the restaurant for the waiter almost the moment their desserts had arrived. More often than not, he could be charming enough to land a second outing, but sometimes he had to be prepared for that speech he'd get between the check and the Uber home, about how great it was to find someone you could just talk to, someone you knew was going to end up such a great friend. But in this year of Zoom, it was agonizingly difficult to know what anyone was really thinking. Sure, Jeremy had counted a dozen awkward silences before he'd started replaying GameStop sea shanties in his head. But awkward silences were common during virtual chats. And it was hard to distinguish true discomfort from wireless glitches and inadvertent mutes. It wasn't really until he'd started noticing his date's eyes shifting to whatever else was open on her own computer that he knew for sure. The main thing they had in common was their disinterest in continuing the conversation even if both of them were too polite to fumble toward a good reason to sign off. Jeremy supposed he was mostly to blame. He'd met Teresa, the pretty sable-haired classmate filling up a square on his laptop screen, which he'd moved all the way to the bottom left corner, as close to the escape key that his computer's design would allow, at the tail end of his freshman year. She'd been dating a mutual acquaintance from one of Jeremy's statistics classes, who'd ended up transferring to a college in the Northeast. After Teresa's boyfriend had left, she and Jeremy had struck up a deeper friendship, which had led to a few late nights at a local diner, sharing exciting conversations about probability biases, analytics, and reversion to the mean. Not exactly Casablanca, but when they'd lost touch over the summer between freshman and sophomore years, Jeremy had always wondered if there had been some spark there he'd just been missing. Now he had his answer. It was Teresa who had first reached out to him just a week earlier, inviting him for a drink to reconnect. As intrigued as Jeremy had been, he'd recoiled at the idea of meeting in person and had offered up the Zoom call instead. 
From the start, it had pretty much been a disaster. Without freshman statistics to fall back on, they'd had very little to anchor a conversation around. And for Jeremy, the timing couldn't have been worse. To say he was preoccupied by what was going on with GameStop and his trading account would have been a vast understatement. Even before the Zoom call, he'd been staring at his laptop screen since he'd awoken from a fitful sleep at five in the morning, and he planned to stay rooted there, behind his desk, until hunger or some other equally important bodily function dragged him away. She had not been two weeks from shore when Ryan Cohen joined the board. The captain called all hands and swore he'll take his shares and hold. Soon may the tendy man come to send our rocket into the sun. One day, when the trading is done, we'll take our gains and go. He really did feel like the song and its lyrics captured the feeling of hope that was sweeping through the Reddit board. And now that Jeremy was part of that mob, fully invested in GameStop, he felt like he was on the front lines, aligned with the rest of the degenerates in the battle that had obviously just begun. He'd made his first purchase of the stock shortly after that day on the golf course with his father, 200 shares at an average price of $15.44 for $3,088. Zero commission, of course. On January 4th, he'd added another 150 shares for $19.20 for another $2,880, a total investment of almost $6,000. From what he'd read on Wall Street Bets, that put him near the middle of the pack, Nowhere near legends like DFE, but a loyal warrior in the fight. And that's exactly how Jeremy had begun to see his trade. Not an investment, not even a YOLO swing for the moon, as he'd described it to his father. Once he'd actually taken the leap and bought shares, he'd become emotionally aligned with the WSB community in their quest to take on Wall Street. Opening his eyes, doing his best to focus on the Zoom chat that was taking up as little of his laptop's real estate as he could respectfully justify, Jeremy wondered what Teresa would have thought if he'd told her about Wall Street bets, and the fact that he was now part of this movement revolving around a video game store and a guy in a bandana on YouTube. Maybe she'd have heard about GameStop already. Stories were already making their way into the business press, and it was only a matter of time before they'd reach the more mainstream news outlets Though it was still a matter of debate whether a true short squeeze was beginning, the stock motion had been insane. Just a few hours ago, Jeremy had watched the price reach $43. That meant his shares were now worth upwards of $15,000. He'd more than doubled his stake. As good as Jeremy was doing in GameStop, his father was doing even better. After their conversation on the golf course, his dad had decided to follow him into the trade and had bought a thousand shares at an average price of around $17. Compared to what Jeremy had risked, that was real money. A $17,000 investment that was now worth $43,000. Jeremy knew he was going to have to work hard to get his dad to continue to hold on to those shares. His dad only laughed whenever Jeremy brought up the term diamond hands and it was clear his dad was not approaching this with the same emotional fervor as Jeremy himself, which, his dad had argued, was a good thing. Jeremy would be the first to admit he had to be careful not to let himself get carried away. Already he was having trouble concentrating on his schoolwork, and he'd missed two study sessions with his bubble in the past few days. He'd started and stopped his latest problem set more than once, 
but linear algebra just didn't hold the same appeal as the war he was helping wage against Wall Street. Maybe the girl on his Zoom had already heard a little about the war. If she'd turned on CNBC or read any business threads on Twitter that morning, for instance, she'd have already gotten a full serving of how the other side saw what was happening. Even though the price was still relatively earthbound, at $43, the suits and ties had already begun firing back. Maybe the most angering of the conservative voices striking out at the Reddit crew so far had to be the short-selling aficionado and activist, Andrew Left, who ran a company called Citron Research. That very morning, right after the market had opened and GameStop had started to rise, Left's firm had put up a tweet advertising that tomorrow they were going to do a live stream. The five reasons GameStop's GME buyers at these levels are the suckers at this poker game. Stock back to $20 fast. We understand short interest better than you and will explain. As one would expect, the tweet had hit Wall Street bets like a stick of dynamite. The community had immediately rallied together, going after Citron and left in the manner of their medium. Vicious memes, personal attacks, ridicule, squeeze the lemon. Nothing had been off limits. Although Jeremy didn't condone some of the darker tactics employed by those who saw Citron on par with Melvin, an enemy to be destroyed, it was clear that Citron had little respect for the retail traders on WSB. To Jeremy, he was just some guy spewing his opinion, which was no more valid than DFV's. CNBC gave him a megaphone, but all he was really doing was galvanizing the opposition. By the end of the day, the online uproar would grow so intense, Citron would cancel its live stream, later claiming that its Twitter feed had been hacked. Jeremy didn't agree with the vicious personal attacks hurled at left, but he did understand the WSB community's natural response to being called suckers, especially while the stock soared to new heights. And why should any of them listen to left over DFV? Because he'd gone to a better college? Because he worked at a desk in Manhattan instead of out of a basement somewhere in Massachusetts? Still, even if Teresa had been following GameStop, Jeremy would never have a chance to dazzle her with his trading account, because she was already halfway into an excuse about her laptop's battery running low. Jeremy wasn't sure which of them won the race to the leave meeting button, but in the frozen image of her face that remained on his screen just a moment too long, he could see that she shared his sense of relief. Before the news had hit the market, Wall Street bets came up and bought it. With diamond hands, they knew they'd profit, if they could only hold. Soon may the tendyman come to send our rocket into the sun. One day, when the trading is done, we'll take our gains and go. He was already banishing Zoom back to his app folder when a new chime told him that he wasn't yet going to be allowed back to Wall Street bets to the sea shanties and anti-Citron rants. A quick glance at his phone told him that his brother was FaceTiming, an accurate bit of timing that only a younger brother could pull off. Of course, Casper had known the date would end early and in failure. They had, after all, grown up sharing 44 feet of canvas on a catamaran for much of their formative years. Jeremy grudgingly accepted the call to see Casper grinning widely at him from beneath his own mop of reddish-blonde hair. You blew it again, right? Shut up, dumbass. It's that sort of attitude that chases them away. Have you tried being nice? Jeremy reached for the screen to disconnect, and Casper waved his hands in front of his camera. Hold on, man, just kidding. I didn't really call to talk about your ineptitude with the ladies. Dad texted me, 
About GameStop. Jeremy's stomach dropped. He didn't sell, did he? There was a brief pause, which Casper milked for all it was worth. No, but I told him he should. And you should, too. $43 a share? You're fucking rich. Jeremy exhaled. You don't know what you're talking about. This is just getting started. Jeremy had already gone back and forth with Casper about GameStop a handful of times, beginning during the long drive back from Christmas break. Casper had thought Jeremy was crazy and had given him a hard time about getting their dad to throw money in as well. You're an expert now? No, Jeremy said. I'm an ape. I'm king of the apes. His brother was not impressed. You really think these Wall Street firms who are shorting the hell out of GME don't know what they're doing? Jeremy didn't think his brother really wanted an answer, but Jeremy had given the subject a lot of thought. He didn't know much about Melvin Capital, other than it was one of the most respected firms on the street. And Gabe Plotkin was supposed to be this rock star trader, groomed by Steve Cohen, one of the most feared men in finance. Plotkin was smart, probably smarter than everyone on the Wall Street Bets board. But, Jeremy believed, Plotkin didn't understand what he was up against. He decided to put it in terms his brother might understand. His brother didn't invest in stocks but he'd played a lot of poker with his friends at school and also online. He knew how to gamble, and he knew what it meant to get too cocky. Melvin is holding a pair of aces, and the flop has hit, and it's showing two sixes and another ace. Melvin is certain they've won with their full house, aces over sixes. What they don't see is us. We're holding a pair of sixes. We've got four of a kind. Melvin and the other Wall Street firms are making the right play shorting a company they believe is a dog. But they're still going to lose. And they're so damn arrogant, so used to winning, they just can't let it go. His brother paused, digesting it, then looked into his camera. I guess you're not going to sell. Maybe I'm never going to sell. That's stupid. It's GameStop. Its market value is already... And that's what you and Wall Street don't understand. You still think the market value means something. You sound like Citron going on CNBC telling me why I'm the sucker at the table. You don't get what's really happening here. Jeremy, the whole world is screwed up, Jeremy continued. He felt his face heating up, his emotions flowing. We're all stuck at home on our couches and in our beds, and these Wall Street guys like Citron and Melvin are looking at us from their beach houses and their penthouse apartments. And they've got teams of analysts and complicated mathematical algorithms and huge bankrolls. And what have we got? Casper paused again. God, that date must have been bad. We've got GME, Jeremy finished. And then he did reach for the screen and disconnected. GME, not GameStop. GME, a once-in-a-lifetime shot at the moon. Chapter 15 January 22nd, 2021, Orlando, Florida. A sunny, breezy, beautiful Friday afternoon, ten minutes before market close. Jim Swartwout caught his breath for the first time since breakfast, as his gaze settled on the swaying fronds of a distant palm tree through the windows of his corner office in Robin Hood's Lake Mary, Orlando headquarters. He let the last few beats until the closing bell tick away in silence, just breathing, deeply in tune with those undulating, scythe-shaped leaves. Willing his way toward the end of one of the most unusual days, capping one of the most unusual weeks, 
of his year-and-a-half tenure at the Silicon Valley Upstart Brokerage. To be fair, if you could say anything about the company's satellite offices in sunny, breezy, beautiful Lake Mary, it was that unusual things almost never happened there. The whole reason you opened headquarters in this sun-bleached splash of land 20 miles up I-4 from downtown Orlando was to avoid action. Lake Mary wasn't just sleepy. It was delightfully comatose. A wealthy latticework of beautiful homes set around natural reserves, lakes, biking trails, open-air restaurants, boutiques, good school systems, whose main selling point was its proximity to the airport, and that it squatted in the shadow of the biggest tourist destination on Earth. That shadow had mouse ears, but even so, Lake Mary was a wonderful place to raise a family, and a fairly odd place to put the beating heart of the hottest, most disruptive company in fintech. Of course, the decision to open a satellite office among the palm trees and alligator-infested waterways of northern Florida had much to do with the complex cost-benefit calculations that went along with rapid breakneck expansion. Robin Hood was growing so fast and hiring so many, it made sense that they would expand, geographically, well beyond Menlo Park. Plans would soon be announced for offices in New York and Seattle, but Lake Mary had come first. Initially announced in 2017 with the heady goal of employing 200. Compared to the thousands who worked at your average investment bank in the bevy of skyscrapers sprouting from lower Manhattan, where Jim had previously been employed, or for that matter, the 77,000 who toiled in the glow of Cinderella's castle at the Magic Kingdom just down the highway, it was a baby step. But for a Silicon Valley startup aimed primarily at millennials with a few thousand bucks of barely disposable income to toss at the stock market on a random Friday afternoon, it was quite impressive. No less impressive, the Lake Mary headquarters themselves, maybe not as magazine-worthy as the beachy sprawl in Menlo Park, but fresh and modern, with state-of-the-art conference rooms and offices, and, of course, plenty of windows. There was also the mural, similar to Menlo, with its cats and nods to Sherwood. But in Lake Mary, the forest had been exchanged for a dock-filled coastal bay, complete with motorboats, lounge chairs, feline pirates, and alligators wearing sunglasses. Camera ready for whenever Vlad and Baiju visited, though the two unicorns didn't come through Lake Mary very often. Jim wasn't complaining, and who could complain this close to Space Mountain? But as with most tech companies centered in the valley whose tentacles reached beyond the California state borders, Robinhood's satellite offices didn't often get front billing. It was easy to think of the Lake Mary operation as something hidden behind the geographic curtain, and Jim himself was usually a voice on the other end of a phone, or more recently, a face on the other side of a Zoom, someone you only heard or saw when things went wrong. But Jim knew better. Robin Hood wasn't like other Silicon Valley tech companies, because it wasn't just a tech company. And Jim's team in Lake Mary, already 70 strong, growing day by day since he joined in June 2019, was at the core of the business Robin Hood was building, and part of the reason that Robin Hood would soon be worth many multiples of the $4 billion valuation that had recently been bandied about in the pages of numerous financial papers. Still, being at the center of what Robin Hood was striving to be, the fin in its fin tech, didn't mean Jim's position at the company could be described as something particularly flashy. Nor was he himself as sparkly and glittery as Vlad or Baiju. 
who seemed to have been artfully crafted for some future cover of Forbes. It didn't help that the role Jim had first been hired to fill, head of clearing, wasn't the sort of title you could easily explain at a dinner party. To be sure, there weren't many dinner parties in Lake Mary, but if Jim had showed up dressed as goofy or wearing rodent ears, at least people would have had some idea what he did for a living. Now that he was president of the company and the chief operating officer, it was a little easier to describe himself over cocktails. But when he got into the nitty-gritty, it still often seemed like he'd willingly entered some sort of financial witness protection program. Jim hadn't started out in clearing. He'd been a trader on Wall Street before shifting toward the entrepreneurial tech side of the business. He'd run the trading desk at E-Trade, one of the earliest online brokerages, back in 1999. And after becoming COO of that company, he'd moved on to a similar position at Scott Trade, then to president of trade Monster. On top of that, over the years, he'd worked at numerous financial institutions and had been in and out of many startups. But being part of Robinhood was a dream situation, for a couple of reasons. Robinhood was unique among its peers for having built out its own clearing platform using brand new cloud-based technology planting itself squarely at the intersection of technology and finance. And on top of that, Robinhood's mission was unique and inspiring. The company wasn't just profit-oriented and profitable, but to Jim, it seemed morally good. Robinhood wanted to level the playing field by opening up trading to average people, many of whom had never had the opportunity to invest in stocks before. When Robinhood had opened its doors, 50% of stocks were owned by the top 1%. If simplifying a trading platform brought equity to the markets, it was an enormous net positive. But as slick and shiny as that platform might be, Jim knew that the real magic was beneath the gloss, in the piping that made Robinhood work. And that piping was Jim's domain. Robinhood was reinventing the stock market for millennials and Gen Z, but the last thing young people wanted to see or think about was the piping that made it all work. And sometimes, to the outside observer, maybe it could appear that a similar attitude extended all the way to Menlo Park. You didn't get more arm's length from Silicon Valley than Orlando without hitting ocean. And the attitude made sense. You might carry on a pleasant conversation with the plumber while he was fixing your sink, but you didn't often invite him to dinner afterward. But this past week, culminating in this crazy Friday afternoon, was one of those rare moments when the plumber hung around at least until the main course. Jim had been on the phone with Menlo Park a number of times over the past few hours. What was going on in the market, and particularly on Robinhood, wasn't an emergency, but it was concerning. And more than that, it was strange. Because unlike other market issues that popped up from time to time, involving clearing and capital attention, this situation didn't concern a variety of unusual trading surrounding a large number of the 13,000 equities bought and sold by Robinhood customers. This situation mostly revolved around a single stock. As the head of clearing and now the COO, Jim had faced his fair share of difficult circumstances having to do with customers and trading. There had been a couple of speed bumps, some before he'd joined the company, like the alleged confusion involving banking regulations surrounding Robinhood's savings account back in 2018, and more recent issues, like a $65 million SEC fine revolving around the company's alleged lack of communication about their payment for order flow practices. But the most difficult moment by far had taken place only seven months earlier 
when a 20-year-old college kid named Alexander Kearns had committed suicide after seeing a temporary negative balance of over $730,000 in his Robinhood account. Although Kearns had not actually been on the hook for the immense loss, which was the result of some complicated put options, and he may not have realized that the negative balance would soon be erased by a credit to his account, it was clear the confusion of the moment had weighed heavily on the boy. Kearns' suicide note had read in part, as reported by Forbes magazine after Kearns' death, how was a 20-year-old with no income able to get assigned almost a million dollars worth of leverage? For everyone at Robin Hood, this had been an immense, emotional, and tragic moment, which had also flashed all over the news and gained traction across many social networks. Robin Hood had done what it could in the aftermath to make sure that such a misunderstanding couldn't occur again. Improving the site's messaging involving options trading, making changes to its interface, and expanding their educational content, especially surrounding options and margin trading. Such a tragedy should never have happened, and Jim and the rest of the company's leadership would do everything they could to try and safeguard their customers going forward. But Jim knew that powerful trading tools such as options, which gave users the ability to leverage themselves, would always carry some level of risk. And margin, which allowed approved customers the ability to buy stocks with borrowed money, gave, by definition, traders the ability to invest more than they had. Day trading wasn't a video game, no matter what it looked like. It was real life, with real life implications. It was Jim's job as head of clearing to manage that risk, not just for the customer's sake, but also for the company at large, and in tune with regulations laid down by the government and the banking industry, some of which went back in time to an era before words like app or cloud or online had any relationship to finance. If Jim was back at that imaginary dinner party, trying to explain what he did for a living, he'd have tried to keep it simple. Clearing involved everything that took place between the moment someone started a trade, buying or selling a stock, for instance, and the moment that trade was settled, meaning the stock had officially and legally changed hands. Most people who used online brokerages thought of that transaction as happening instantly. You wanted 10 shares of GME? You hit a button and bought 10 shares of GME. And suddenly, 10 shares of GME were in your account. But that's not actually what happened. You hit the buy button, and Robinhood might find your shares immediately and put them into your account. But the actual trade took two days to complete, known for that reason in financial parlance as T plus 2 clearing. By this point in the dinner conversation, Jim would have fully expected the other diner's eyes to glaze over. But he would only be just beginning. Once the trade was initiated, once you hit that buy button on your phone, it was Jim's job to handle everything that happened in the in-between world. First, he had to facilitate finding the opposite partner for the trade, which was where payment for order flow came in, as Robinhood bundled its trades and sold them to a market maker like Citadel. And next, it was the clearing brokerage's job to make sure that transaction was safe and secure. In practice, the way this worked was by 10 a.m. each market day, Robinhood had to insure its trades by making a cash deposit to a federally regulated clearinghouse, something called the Depository Trust and Clearing Corporation, or DTCC. That deposit was based on the volume, type, risk profile, and value of the equities being traded. The riskier the equities, the more likely something might go wrong between the buy and the sell, the higher that deposit might be. 
Of course, most of all this took place via computers. In 2021, and especially at a place like Robinhood, it was an almost entirely automated system. When customers bought and sold stocks, Jim's computers gave him a recommendation of the sort of deposit he could expect to need to make based on the requirements set down by the SEC and the banking regulators. All simple and tidy, and at the push of a button. If any of Jim's dinner companions had still been awake by this point in the conversation, he could then have explained the wild week he'd just endured in terms they might actually now understand. Maybe they'd even perk up, as it all had to do with a stock that was now making its way into the mainstream news. To say that what was going on with GameStop was unprecedented would be an understatement. In the past week, the stock's price had more than doubled again, and had reached an intraday high early that very afternoon of $76.76, then had closed just a moment ago at a penny past $65. Such price action itself wasn't unheard of, but GME had done so via a daily volume and a volatility that was hard to believe. Today alone, more than 194 million shares had changed hands, eight times the stock's usual average. And on the option side, the stock had been even more volatile. 913,000 calls had been traded by the end of the afternoon. One contract, with a strike price of $60, which expired today, had become the most actively traded option on the entire stock market, rising in price by almost 3,000%. The overall volatility of GME had been so insane, the stock's trading had been halted at least four times already, and all of this after the stock had already doubled the week before. GameStop, a company whose heyday had arguably occurred a decade earlier, had become the most actively traded company in the world. Jim watched CNBC, read the Wall Street Journal, which was even delivered to Orlando, so he was well aware of the brewing battle between the retail traders communicating with each other on Wall Street bets, and the Wall Street firms, who held large short positions in the stock. He certainly had followed the Twitter drama that had occurred when Citron Research had posted their tweet calling the Reddit traders suckers. According to Andrew Left and Citron, since they'd posted the tweet, now three days ago, the episode had taken an even uglier turn. In a letter Left had posted on Twitter that Friday, He'd announced that he would no longer be publicly commenting on GameStop, claiming that he and his family had been harassed by an angry mob who owns this stock, who had spent the past 48 hours committing multiple crimes. What Citron has experienced in the past 48 hours is nothing short of shameful and a sad commentary on the state of the investment community. We are investors who put safety and family first, and when we believe this has been compromised, it is our duty to walk away from a stock. Left had further added, in a video posted to YouTube, that he'd never seen such an exchange of ideas of people so angry about someone joining the other side of a trade. Clearly, what was going on with GameStop wasn't normal, and in decades on Wall Street, Jim had never seen anything quite like it before. No doubt, the emotional component of what was happening fed into the chaos he was seeing on the clearing side of the equation. The volumes, the volatility, all of it, represented abnormal trading patterns, because the trading going on was being powered by abnormal trading motives. Markets were supposed to be rational, but there was nothing rational about people who loved the stock so much they'd harass the family of someone on the other side of the trade. Still, despite the strangeness of the market and the chaos in the stock, Jim felt certain that on the clearing side, 
everything was under control. The automated systems had kicked in as they were supposed to. For several weeks already, his systems had raised the margin requirements surrounding GameStop to take some of the risk out of the equation. As things started to get crazy, you could still buy GameStop on margin at Robinhood, but only at 50% of the usual rate. Eventually, that number would change to 100%, meaning buying GameStop on margin would no longer be possible. This sort of control might upset some customers, but it wasn't just to protect Robinhood's deposit requirements, which were partially based on risk profiles of trades, but also to protect the customers themselves. Jim believed a large part of his duties were to watch out for those customers, Robinhood's users. Commission-free trades and zero-account requirements were only part of the picture. Payment for order flow, as much as it benefited Robinhood, also led to even more cost savings to the customers because the trades flowed through the market makers who were constantly looking for the best and most efficient settlements. That was why the majority of Robinhood's trades flowed through Citadel, the massive Chicago-based financial firm founded by Ken Griffin, who now handled 40% of all retail trades, precisely because they were the best at what they did. Through Citadel, Robinhood's PFOF strategy had saved its customers $1 billion in the past year alone by finding the best bids and offers and completing them the most efficient way. Of course, the ins and outs of PFOF were as complicated as the minutiae involved in clearing. The bottom line was, Jim and Robin Hood were determined to keep their retail traders happy and safe. Sometimes, this meant leaning hard in one direction or the other. As long as the volatility in GameStop continued, efforts like limiting margin trades would have to be made. Though some users might find it constraining, sometimes a bit of constraint was for everyone's own good. Minutes later, when the market finally closed for the day, Jim turned his attention back to the computer on his desk. GameStop's price chart took up most of the screen, and it really was impressive. The close at 6501 had no doubt made a lot of Robinhood's customers a ton of money. Some, perhaps, millions. But the week was over, and the weekend was here. Jim felt sure that calmer, more rational minds would eventually take over. They always did. That idea, that markets were inherently rational, went back a very long time all the way to the 18th century. And even though many events had challenged that logic over the years, bubble after bubble, the occasional market hiccup, the crash of 2008, in the end, people tended to act in their own best interests. They bought when they saw value, and they sold when they sensed things were about to go the other way. All the talk going on about short squeezes. Most likely, it was just that. Talk. Every time a stock with ugly fundamentals went up, Amateur traders loved to shout about short squeezes, but they almost never actually happened. Maybe 15 times in the past decade had a true short squeeze actually occurred. Jim would continue to do his job diligently, as he always did, keeping an eye on those clearing deposits, making sure everything continued to run smoothly. But he wasn't overly concerned. The reason nobody spent a lot of time worrying about the sort of low-possibility events people described as black swans which could be disastrous for sure, was that they happened, at most, once in a lifetime. And in a place like Lake Mary, 20 miles north of Orlando. Even less than that. Chapter 16 January 25th, 2021
I'm not selling this until at least a thousand dollars plus. GME, buckle the fuck up. Maybe you're the ones who should be in restraints. I think you've all gone crazy. The kid was grinning beneath the longish blonde hair, hanging down over his forehead, shiny strands framing his narrow face, as he gazed at the screen of Kim's phone. She smiled back at him, working the Velcro straps of the blood pressure monitor around his spindly arm. The boy's name was Jake, and he wasn't really a kid. He was 20 and a college junior, and he'd already been through so much shit in his short life. He had lines under his green eyes and a sarcastic lift to the edges of his lips, even when he wasn't smiling. She'd set the phone down on the seat next to him without realizing that she'd left it open to the Wall Street bets board. She thought about turning it off, hiding it back away in her scrubs, but then decided it couldn't hurt to leave it where it was. Besides, looking at Jake in his retro t-shirt emblazoned with one of those old Atari controllers and his Converse sneakers, she figured he would be as interested in what was going on with GameStop as anyone else. He reminded her of one of the skate park boys her older son would sometimes hang out with after school. They'd always made Kim a little nervous, but Brian had insisted that they weren't bad kids, just different. And Kim had always been good with different. Nobody needs any restraints today, Kim said, tightening the blood pressure cuff. And you know we don't use the crazy word here, Jake. He rolled his eyes as she began pumping air into the gauge. She'd gotten to know Jake pretty well over the past year, since he was one of her many repeat patients. The pandemic had been tough on kids his age, especially the ones who had already been on the brink for whatever reason. The pandemic had left those kids even more isolated, taking them away from their routines, sometimes trapping them back home with their parents, who often didn't fully understand the chemical imbalances or the psychological traumas or whatever it was that made them different. Maybe you don't use it. I use it all the time. And if this isn't crazy, I don't know what is. He was pointing at the post on the top of the screen, by a Reddit user calling himself Dumbledore Roth IRA. Kim didn't need to read it. She'd already seen it and had gone through many of the comments it had elicited, even upvoting a few. Now that she had shares of GME herself, she completely understood the sentiment. GME at $1,000 might seem nuts to the uninitiated, but to those who had spent most of the past weekend scrolling through Wall Street bets, reading comment after comment by people shouting about their diamond hands, people from all different walks of life who had bought in and then posted their trading accounts right there on the board for anyone to see. It made perfect sense. She glanced back over her shoulder, making sure the curtain surrounding the small examination area was tightly closed. If one of the doctors had happened by and seen her sharing her phone with a patient, she'd be in trouble. But today, she was willing to take the risk. Hell, what was going on behind that screen was so compelling, she'd almost skipped work entirely. She'd spent 30 minutes in her car before her shift, parked in the lot behind the hospital, just scrolling through WSB. It was hard to believe, but Friday's close, GME up over $65 a share, had only been the beginning. The weekend hadn't slowed the rocket down at all, and it appeared that the rest of the WSB community had spent the past two days in the same frenzied state as Kim, consumed by thoughts of what might happen. When the market had finally opened that morning, it was like a lid flying off a pot. The stock had skyrocketed to $96.73, and that had just been the beginning. When Kim had opened Robinhood to check the stock during her lunch break, 
GME had been nearing an intraday high of $159.18. It had gone down since then, but had just closed 30 minutes ago at $76.79, more than $10 higher than the close on Friday. And even now, it was still heading upward in after-hours trading, perhaps back toward that high of the day. It was hard to believe, but at lunchtime, Kim's 100 shares had been worth almost $16,000. Even now, they were sitting at $7,679. If she'd sold them all, she could easily pay for Brian's braces. But she had no intention of selling a single share. Look at this guy, Jake said, touching the screen with a finger. This guy should definitely be in restraints. Kim glanced to where Jake was pointing. He'd navigated to a link on the board, which had led him to a clip that had been posted to Twitter. Kim recognized the man in the video right away, because she'd been following him on the site for some time. David Portnoy, the head of a company called Barstool. Barstool had started as a magazine, and then a website, dedicated to sports, but had morphed into an internet leviathan, catering mostly to the type of men who had once bought subscriptions to Sports Illustrated and Maxim and Playboy. Portnoy was a galvanizing figure, frenetic, explosive, and every man with a Boston accent and a demagogic tinge, who often posted video reviews of pizza and sometimes stocks. Kim had liked Portnoy from the beginning, because despite the fact that he wasn't really like her, he was a multimillionaire with legions of followers. He seemed to speak to her. I have no problem with what went on with GameStop, the video began, as Portnoy, unshaven in a white t-shirt, davened toward the screen. WSB pumped GameStop to the moon, shorts getting squeezed out. I'm sure the old guard is going to complain and say boo-hoo. Shut up. Adapt or die. Wall Street bets isn't going anywhere. Reddit isn't going anywhere. Robin Hood, not going anywhere. That's part of the game. Guess what? In football, the forward pass didn't exist in the beginning. New traders, new strategy. It's the world's greatest casino. The only difference now is the people at Wall Street bets can do this as well. You think the big banks don't pump and dump? Shut up! You can't have your cake and eat it too. People crying in their milk. Kim would have applauded if her hands hadn't been busy with the blood pressure gauge. Portnoy was exactly right. She'd seen it in the comments. The mainstream business news had been filled with Wall Street types crying in their milk over what was going on with GameStop. It was as if they couldn't handle the fact that their control over the market was being broken by this group of amateurs on a Reddit board. He's not wrong, Kim said, still pumping air. He's rough at the edges, but he's not wrong. You gonna vote for him, too? Kim gave the gauge an extra hard pump. He wouldn't be much worse than anyone else. But Jake had already moved past Portnoy's diatribe to another post on the WSB board. The kid whistled low, using his fingers to enlarge an image on the screen. Kim immediately recognized DFV's most recent YOLO update and the picture of his trading account. Jake had been right to whistle. The numbers in that account were truly staggering. Is this real money? Kim nodded. DFV's $53,000 initial investment had exploded. According to his account, he now had 50,000 shares of GameStop. At $76.79, those shares were valued at $3,839,500. On top of that, he had bought 800 GME April 16th calls at an execution price of $12 a share. Those calls were now worth a whopping $5.2 million. DFV had also accrued cash from his earlier options, 
which gave him a total account value of almost $14 million. It was no wonder that DFV had now become the most famous user on the WSB board, and that his YouTube videos were now getting hundreds of thousands of views. Likewise, it was not surprising that the GameStop story was now being talked about in every mainstream media outlet. No longer just the business shows and networks, but everywhere. DFV, who was one of them, just another retard, just another ape, had made $14 million, and at the same time, had driven a stake right into the heart of Wall Street. There was no question in Kim's mind. The shorts were panicking. They had to be panicking. And if this wasn't a squeeze in action, she'd go Democrat for the rest of her days. One of her favorite memes that had exploded across the board as GME had flown skyward had been called from an appearance of Jim Cramer, the stock picker, investor, and CNBC wildman, who had gone on his network a few times during the growing fracas to try and break down what was happening. During the appearance, Kramer had summed up the apparent WSB trading strategy, in contrast to Wall Street's algorithms, which involved sophisticated math, months of research, high-paid analysis, bleeding, we like the stock, we like the stock. The phrase had turned into a rallying cry, not only because it was simple and easy to meme, but because it really did encompass everything DFV had been shouting, to anyone who would listen for more than a year. And now it wasn't just DFV alone in his basement, and it wasn't even just a bunch of freaks on a Reddit board. That morning, before Kim had left for work, she'd been at the kitchen table checking her phone when her older son, Brian, had leaned over and seen her trading account. He'd looked at her with wide eyes. Mom, you own GameStop? He'd asked. I do, she'd answered. And I bought it at 16. She'd never seen her son so excited. He'd immediately started texting his friends to tell them, and had even shown her one of the responses. Oh my god, that's fucking awesome. Tell her to buy Doge next. Kim knew it was stupid, but hearing something like that from her son thrilled her. Getting cool points from a teenager was almost as good as getting accolades from Jim Cramer and David Portnoy. The truth was, Kim was incredibly proud of herself. As she checked the numbers on the blood pressure gauge and added them to Jake's chart, she realized she was still smiling. All last week, and all weekend, via texts and emails, Chinwei had been telling her to sell her GME, but she'd held steady, and she was now determined to keep holding. Chinwei had her best interests in mind, but he didn't get it. She was part of something now, something real, and she was going to see it all the way through. A thousand dollars a share, Jake said, as he continued looking at her phone. And they say I'm delusional. Nobody says that, Kim responded, as she started to unwrap the Velcro from his arm. Besides, there's nothing wrong with a little delusion. Sometimes it helps you get through the day. She watched as he continued to scroll. A thousand dollars a share? Maybe Jake was right. Maybe they were all deluding themselves. DFV had deluded himself straight into a $14 million bankroll, and Kim was right there next to him with her hundred shares, happily untethered from the crap that life had thrown at her again and again. If what was happening with GameStop was the result of one giant shared delusion that a bunch of regular people could actually beat Wall Street, then Kim was happy to close her eyes and lean deep into the feeling that it was no longer clear what was real, what was possible, and what truly was just delusion. Chapter 17 12 hours later.
40 feet below the surface of Hawthorne, California, a working-class enclave 15 miles outside Los Angeles. A freshly bored tunnel fitted with electrodynamic suspension rails and linear induction motors, as well as a partially constructed hyperloop capsule, complete with inlet fan and axial compressor. Elon Musk, CEO and chief techno-king of Tesla, CEO, CTO, and chief designer of SpaceX, Dogecoin enthusiast, Bitcoin proselytizer, sometime richest man in the world, and the former president of the Galactic Federation of Planets, was moving fast, his legs churning at what felt like a thousand RPMs as he tore through the 12-foot-high, mile-long Hyperloop test track. He was breathing hard, fighting for air in the reduced-pressure environment of the underground tube, but the -the state-of-the-art Neuralink embedded in his cerebellum instantly compensated for the lack of oxygen, firing messages down his neural pathways to continuously modify his circulatory and respiratory needs. Accelerating as he went, Elon skirted the half-built passenger capsule and then threw himself into a combat roll, hitting the smooth ground between the magnetic rails shoulder first, then coming out of the move into a perfect crouch. In the same motion, he raised his oversized, boring company brand flamethrower, not a flamethrower. The valve on the propane tank attached above the white and black barrel already open, the gas flowing, as one finger moved toward the ignition and another caressed the trigger. Directly ahead, maybe nine feet across the tunnel from where he was crouched, Elon could see the giant mechanized drilling machine rising up on its rear wheels like a cybernetic insect, and then start forward lumbering toward him. Elon knew, in that brief second as he hit the ignition on his flamethrower, lighting the propane but before his finger pressed the trigger, that they'd gotten lucky, this time. As terrifying as the drilling machine looked, the AI that now inhabited the thing's internal computer system had only become freshly aware that very morning, setting off the anti-self-aware AI software Elon had put in place himself. A few hours more, and the AI would have gained enough knowledge to truly understand what it was, where it was, why it was, and who it needed to destroy. And it would have been too late. But the software had worked, and Elon had gotten to the tunnel in time. Of course, as one of the most powerful men and beloved entrepreneurs in the known universe, Elon could have left the job for one of his many anti-AI kill teams. But he was the sort of CEO who liked to do things for himself. Famously, when his electric car company had been having production issues with its Model 3 sedan, he'd slept on the floor of the assembly plant and had even worn the same clothes for five straight days. Similarly, if an AI was going to come alive in one of his Hyperloop test tunnels, he was going to deal with the issue himself. He braced the flamethrower against his shoulder, aimed the barrel at the self-aware drill, and counted milliseconds, letting the thing continue toward him until it was within the weapon's most efficient range. Staring up into the machine's glowing control diodes, flashing red like the eyes of some satanic beast, he pressed his finger tight against the trigger. A burst of flame leapt forward, engulfing the drill. The AI let out a sickly scream, gears churning as they melted in the superheated butane wind. The machine's exterior shell began to buckle, and Elon pressed the trigger even harder watching the flames rise up, flickering, orange, hungry. Christ, it was a beautiful sight.
Six hours later, Elon came awake to the soft hum of his hyperbaric sleeping pod, blinking hard to chase away the last remnants of a foggy, troubled slumber. A second blink, and he'd engaged his neural link again, using its wireless connection to turn on the ceiling lights of his sprawling command bunker, and also to engage the old-fashioned turntable he kept on the coffee table beside his sleeping pod. Soft violin music seeped in through the thick plexiglass of the pod, and Elon felt his tired muscles start to relax. Most of the time, he was partial to electro-pop or Sinatra classics, but after a night of fighting AI, he found classical strings the better choice. He blinked again, and the top of his pod hissed open. Then he rose to a sitting position, pulled aside his mylar blanket to stretch his legs. The motion sent pangs of pain down his right shoulder, surprising him. Usually the flamethrower didn't have much kickback, so perhaps he needed to work on his combat role. With yet another blink, he sent a slight rush of dopamine down the spider web of nerves in his deltoid, quelling the pain. Then he climbed out of the pod and crossed his bunker toward the kitchen area, tucked into a natural curve in the carved granite wall across from him. The stone floor felt warm against his bare feet as he went. One of the many benefits of having a secret underground bunker, which was heated by geothermal vents. He knew that such a place, another hundred feet below the test tunnel, connected by an even more secret, fully finished hyperloop to his even, even more secret, fully completed domed spaceport two miles off the coast, was very James Bond villain of him. But most of what people said or wrote about him was wrong or made up anyway. Besides, there was something deeply satisfying about playing into the hype surrounding his success. If Elon Musk didn't have an underground bunker and sleep in a hyperbaric chamber and fight AI with flamethrowers, then who the hell did? Bezos? Buffett? Gates? Elon grinned at the thought of Bill Gates firing a flamethrower as he reached his kitchen and headed straight for the blender that was already going full blast on the corner of a Formica counter by the twin refrigerators. When the blender had finished its cycle, Elon lifted the cylinder off its base, glancing down at the reddish-green liquid inside. He still hadn't gotten used to the way the mixture glowed when it reacted with the oxygen in the air, or for that matter the smell, which was decidedly alien. Made sense, of course, since the gourd-shaped vegetable the liquid had come from wasn't from California or even the great state of Texas, where Elon was soon moving some of his operations, or for that matter from Earth at all. It had been brought back on the latest ultra-secret SpaceX mission, and not one of the many trips that had involved his well-publicized reusable rockets, which were going to change the entire aerospace industry. This particular mission had involved the even more sophisticated spaceship housed in another nearby underground bunker, the one with the probability engine, which Elon had borrowed shortly after he'd been elected president of the Galactic Federation. Without the probability engine, it would have been at least a few more years before Elon would have been able to answer the age-old question, is there life on Mars? Now he knew for certain. Yes. And despite how it looked, it tasted pretty damn good. He took a sip from the blender, then used his Neuralink to power up the computer flat screen that dominated much of the wall on the other side of the refrigerators. The first thing that came up was the site he'd been looking at the night before, when he'd come home from fighting the AI. The minute he saw that little mascot, the blonde trader dude in the sunglasses, Elon's grin doubled in size. 
That the sometime richest man in the world had an affinity for a bunch of self-described retards and apes would have only surprised people who didn't know Elon well. And not just his present personality, but his past business history. Elon had always been a dreamer, with a passion for disruption. He'd launched his first startup with his brother when he was just 24, a software company called Zip2, which he'd sold for over $300 million just four years later. Barely a year after that, he'd helped found PayPal, which was bought shortly after by eBay for $1.5 billion. The same year, he'd launched SpaceX and, two years after, was helping build Tesla as its CEO and lead product architect. But unlike many vastly wealthy CEOs and businessmen, Elon didn't just run things, he built them, and was driven forward not by money, though he had a lot of that, but by a desire to make the world, and life on it, or below it, or 176.3 million miles above it, better. Using his Neuralink to sift through the comments on the Wall Street Bets board, certain names and words and themes sprang out at him. Melvin Capital, Short Squeeze, Wall Street versus Main Street, and he felt fire rise in the pit of his stomach. Elon didn't just identify with the retards and apes on a philosophical level, because they were rallying behind a company they loved, trying to survive this crazy pandemic year. But he also connected with them on a personal level, sharing their animosity for an enemy that was very much mutual. That enemy had once almost destroyed Elon himself, or at least his flagship company, as surely as fully self-aware AI might eventually decimate the world. Tesla's battle with short sellers was well known, almost as much for Elon Musk's own public rants, mostly via Twitter, as for how it had affected the company's bottom line. Those shorts, an amalgam of stereotypical Wall Street suits in the guise of billion-dollar hedge funds and analysts, had been coming after Tesla and Elon since all the way back in 2012. With Tesla, Elon had been trying to improve the world by building a car that didn't burn fossil fuels, one that would someday drive itself. Creating something revolutionary was always risky and difficult. To many short sellers, it seemed, companies that took risks and tried to do things that were hard were merely avenues toward profit. Elon was fully aware of the justifications short sellers used to excuse their destructive philosophies, that they were merely identifying weakness and fraud, giving voice to issues that consumers had a right to know about, protecting the market as a whole. But anyone who had been on the other end of a short-selling frenzy understood the reality. Shorts didn't simply place a bet that a stock would go down, waiting hungrily like vultures, so they could pick at the carcass. They often helped push that stock down, not merely with their shares, but through negative stories and public agitation. Giant banks employed armies of analysts who could downgrade a stock any time they wanted. And as much as the banks declared that the analysts were unconnected to the investment side of the business, it was easy to see. There was plenty of collusion going on. When Tesla's production issues concerning its Model 3 had become public in 2018, the shorts had rallied together, striking blow after blow. The most prominent public battle Tesla had fought with the shorts had involved David Einhorn, the hedge fund mogul and founder of Greenlight Capital. Not only had Einhorn taken a huge position on the short side of Tesla, but he'd taken shots at Elon Musk personally, in letters written to his investors. It had begun in the summer of that year, 
after a boost in Tesla stock had caused Einhorn's fund to lose money on their short position. Elon had mocked Einhorn in a tweet. Tragic. We'll send Einhorn a box of short shorts to comfort him through this difficult time. Einhorn had then fired back in one of his quarterly letters to his investors, as reported by CNBC and others. We wonder whether surge production techniques to support self-congratulatory tweets are economically efficient ways of ramping production, or whether customers will be happy with the quality of a car rushed through production to prove a point to short sellers. The most striking feature of the quarter is that Elon Musk appears erratic and desperate. But that was only the beginning. In his next quarterly letter, Einhorn took even more direct aim, comparing Tesla to Lehman Brothers, the failed bank. Like Lehman, we think the deception is about to catch up to Tesla. Elon Musk's erratic behavior suggests he sees it the same way. Continuing on, as reported by Bloomberg at the time, Einhorn had charged that Tesla would never be able to meet the low price targets they'd chosen for the Model 3, and that Elon himself was actually trying to get himself fired. Quitting isn't an option because it prevents Mr. Musk from claiming he could have fixed the problem if he'd stayed. Like his ideological siblings on the Wall Street Bets board, Elon had taken the battle personally and hadn't merely been angry at the short sellers, but apparently had been disgusted by the Wall Street practice of betting on the failure of others. In another tweet, he'd gone as far as to rename the SEC the Short Seller Enrichment Commission. At the time, Elon had worked day and night to deal with Tesla's production issues, personally living in his factories, personally overseeing the fixes necessary to meet his schedules and price points. But it didn't matter how hard he worked, or the future he was trying to build. The shorts only cared about profits. Investor letters were followed by articles in business papers questioning Tesla's technology, its production line, anything they could target. Worst-case price forecasts for the company's stock as ludicrous as $10 a share were bandied about, while the stock was trading at more than 10 times that number, based mostly on the company's debt. Not only did they underestimate Elon's tenacity and his technology, they didn't understand that he wasn't just selling a product. He was attempting to engineer a dream. But shorts didn't profit in dreams. They made their money from nightmares. At the height of their battle, in Tesla's opinion, the shorts went dirty. A viral video of a Tesla battery catching fire led to multiple articles about the dangers of electric cars, and particularly the Tesla Model S. The fact that Teslas were statistically ten times less likely to catch fire than gasoline-powered cars didn't matter or make headlines. Adding to the fray, one business magazine ran a story in which an allegedly disgruntled employee claimed there were faulty batteries in the Model 3 as well. Though completely unconfirmed, the press continued with their field day. The fact that Elon had eventually beaten back the shorts, that Tesla was now trading at above $880 a share, and nobody was talking about exploding batteries anymore, filled Elon with joy but he'd never fully forget the trauma that had been caused by the shorts who had gone after him. When he looked at that WSB board and saw the fury in the comments, aimed mostly at Melvin Capital, who had, coincidentally, been part of the short brigade aligned against Elon and Tesla, and Andrew left at Citron, who had helped carry that damn short flag, he was filled with anger too. He'd tweeted it before, and he truly meant it. What short sellers did should be illegal. 
Profits should be made when dreamers succeed, and it was unnecessary and immoral to profit when someone's dreams fell short. He had no doubt what he was witnessing with GME was a short squeeze in action. The day before, Monday, January 25th, the stock had closed at $76.79. It was now about to open at $88.56. Pretty soon, Melvin and the rest of those damn shorts were going to have to rush to cover. And as long as the rabble on Wall Street bets held tight, those shares would be incredibly difficult to find. And incredibly expensive. Elon took another sip from his blended Martian eggplant, or squash, or whatever the hell he'd eventually decide to name it, and thought about those shorts getting burned. He wasn't sure yet how he himself would get involved, but what he did know was that the chance he would remain silent was very close to nil. Many of his investors and detractors wished he were less vocal on Twitter. What they didn't understand was that Twitter, and the many other social networks available, wasn't simply some technology that you used to communicate, like a phone or even email. It was a bridge between people, not individuals, but everyone. And when Elon closed his eyes, even without the Neuralink, he wasn't alone in his thoughts. He could see all those millions and millions of screens. A revolution powered by all those screens wasn't going to look like revolutions of the past. It was going to move much faster and it was going to feel much more raw. The people sitting in the dark corners of the internet, staring out through those screens, were angry, and they were connected. Elon Musk was just one more node in that angry anti-social network. But every node could be multiplied, again and again and again. And because of that, today, perhaps for the first time in human history, a single shot fired into that network could really be heard around the world. Chapter 18. January 26th, 2021. Half a day later, Tuesday afternoon, minutes to market close. GME price, $147.98. Gabe Plotkin could probably think of a dozen Wall Street disaster stories that had ended with a guy in a $3,000 suit tearing through a trading floor, screaming, sell, sell, sell! Precious few, on the other hand, ended with the banker yelling the opposite. But that was exactly the sentiment flowing through a half dozen major banks as the lid came off the teapot, the hurricane hit lower Manhattan, and the nuclear plant went critical. The word of the day, at firms all over the city who had taken short positions on GameStop and at Melvin Capital, as it had been for the week leading up to the 26th, perhaps more than anywhere else, was buy. Buy, buy, buy. Gabe moved through the chaotic minutes before the closing bell as if in slow motion. It was hard to believe that it had come to this, and he was doing his best to appear outwardly calm and in control, like Michael Jordan when a big game was on the line. But in this situation, no three-point shot would save the day. No incredible acrobatic dunk could change the outcome, because from all appearances, someone had taken the basket away. Had the thinking been wrong? Could a bunch of loosely connected retail day traders actually dislodge a stock from its fundamentals and create a squeeze out of what was essentially, from the short perspective, thin air? Or was something more nefarious going on? Clearly, on Wall Street bets, there was a coordinated effort, at least in targeted posts and comments, to attack Melvin's positions, all of their short positions, not just GameStop. But still, 
would that alone be enough to make a stock go nuclear? Gabe would never say it out loud. Maybe he wouldn't even think it to himself. But those suckers on Wall Street bets, those retail losers on their couches with their COVID checks, their stimmies, were probably only half of the story. They'd swallowed up a lot of the available shares of GME. But even so, there was more going on perhaps involving sophisticated call options, perhaps bigger money riding on top of the retail mob. Certainly, what was happening felt organized, and nobody could disagree. The price of GameStop no longer had any relationship to the intrinsic value of the company. Whatever was really going on, the pressure had become so powerful, there was no longer any choice. Gabe and every other Wall Street player who had done the math and had taken short positions had to cover as fast as they possibly could which meant buying shares from as many weak hands as the shorts could find. No question, Gabe had underestimated, had not even truly identified the competition. And he had also neglected to take into account emotion. That spite, revenge, and anger were all viable motivators, and when amplified a million times by a social network, or corralled and exploited by unseen powerful forces, these motivators could move mountains as well as markets. Gabe could easily imagine what the 22nd floor would have looked like if this had taken place during a normal period in time. His young charges would have been at their phones and computers, shouting, cursing, maybe even throwing things. Some would be angry, most would be terrified about the losses that were accruing by the second, and maybe about their own job security. You didn't fire family, but usually Cousin Billy didn't lose one billion dollars before breakfast. It was terrible thinking about what his Melvin employees and partners were going through, even in their homes, working virtually, shouting at screens in extra bedrooms, attics, and modified playrooms. Melvin was in the process of being handed one of the biggest defeats in Wall Street history. Though it would never be entirely clear how much Gabe's company would lose on GameStop, sources such as the Wall Street Journal and CNBC would report that Melvin had shed as much as 53% of its total value. Melvin had started the year with around $12.5 billion in capital, which, if the reports were accurate, meant the firm had lost more than $6.5 billion, primarily on GameStop, but also on many of their other short positions that the Wall Street Bets community had gone after, companies such as AMC, BlackBerry, and Bed Bath & Beyond. It was hard not to see what was going on as personal. There was no ration or reason behind the meteoric rise in most of these stocks. All of them had questionable fundamentals, other than that they were being weaponized against the Wall Street shorts. GameStop had become the most traded stock in the entire U.S. market, ahead of Apple, Microsoft, Tesla. The company's valuation had risen from $350 million to $10 billion in a single year. Much of that rise in the past three market days while the company continued to chart losses. Even Michael Burry, whose long interest had helped start the rally, had called the current trading unnatural, insane, and dangerous. Burry was a perfect example that the narrative wasn't as simple as had been advanced in the press, that this was only a battle between institutional shorts like Melvin and the rabble on Wall Street bets. Gabe knew the retail traders with their COVID checks might be powering the current, but the real money was up top, surfing those furious waves. And in the past few hours, it seemed like everyone was trying to get in on the fun. Perhaps the biggest voice added to the chaos of the day had to be that of Chamath Palihapitiya, 
the former founder and head of a fund called Social Capital, which had famously shut down in 2017 after a bout of personal introspection had led the billionaire to question what was really important to him. He tried to explain the decision in 2018 when he'd appeared on a podcast hosted by Kara Swisher and Teddy Schleifer, as reported by Vox at the time. I had been exploring why, after the accumulation of all of these things, more companies invested in, more funds raised, more notoriety, more television appearances, more this, more that, more everything. Why am I not happy? In fact, I'm less happy. And in fact, I think that I've actually really bastardized some core relationships in my life where I've created hyper-transactional relationships in many areas of my life. To all the people that worked for me and whose money I took, you're fucking welcome. We did the job we were asked to do. But just like Michael Jordan had a decision to retire and go play baseball, I chose to retire and go play baseball. Now, I may come back to basketball, but this is my decision. I am not your slave. I just want to be clear. My skin color 200 years ago may have gotten you confused, but I am not your slave. Apparently, choosing to retire and play baseball had also left time for Palihapitiya to join the GameStop fray, firmly on the side of the WSB mob. During the day's trading, he had tweeted that he had bought GameStop call options. He'd later go on CNBC, flying the WSB banner even higher. In the appearance, Palihapitiya would describe how he'd spent the entire night reading the Wall Street Bets board, and how he believed what the world was seeing was a pushback against the establishment in a really important way. He didn't denigrate the WSB community as amateurs, quite the opposite. I would encourage anybody who is dismissive of this thing to go into WSB and actually just read the forums. Not only did he believe some of the posts were based on good research into fundamentals, he completely understood the passion that had brought the community together. A lot of people coming out of 2008 saw how Wall Street took a risk and left retailers the bag holders. These kids in grade school and high school saw their parents, lost homes and jobs, why did those folks get bailed out and nobody showed up to help my family? Palihapitiya didn't think that the chaos of the market was a momentary aberration. This retail phenomenon is here to stay. To him, it was a natural reaction to the games Wall Street had been playing for years, to the detriment of the average investor. A normal person would look at GameStop and say, how can you have 136% short interest? How can you be short 40% more shares than actually exist in the world? That's the game that has been played for years, and that game came undone. And then Palihapitiya had gone directly after Melvin. The reason this GameStop play has caused so much pain, Melvin was at the top of the pecking order. Gabe Plotkin is one of the giants of my era. But at the end of the day, when the trade goes against him, it goes against all of them. Fundamental momentum investors, who are organized capital and loosely affiliated, like WSB, can be on the same footing. For once, he was saying, despite Melvin's power and station, the retail trader doesn't have to be the bag holder. Portraying Palihapitiya as just another diamond-handed culture warrior in lockstep with the Wall Street bets rabble would be poor framing. He'd reportedly closed out his calls on GameStop before the CNBC interview and would donate $500,000 of the profit he'd made to David Portnoy's Barstool Fund for Small Business Relief. Furthermore, He'd recently announced, on Twitter and elsewhere, that he would be running for governor of California. Although he'd retract his candidacy a week later, 
It was obvious his retirement from basketball didn't mean he didn't still enjoy a few spotlights, flashbulbs, cameras, and microphones pointed in his direction from time to time. But Gabe understood that the forces aligned against him and Melvin had moved far beyond the Wall Street Bets board, which, even with 2.5 million members now in rising, was still firmly lodged in the basement of the internet. GameStop was no longer a flailing brick-and-mortar company. It was an idea, not just a financial position, but a moral issue, of which Gabe found himself suddenly on the wrong side. There really wasn't any choice anymore. As much as Gabe would have liked to have waited one more day to see if rational thought could somehow return to the market and calm the storm, he knew the risks were compiling by the minute. The stock was racing higher and higher, and as Palihapitiya had predicted, things weren't going to return to normal anytime soon. If ever. In fact, things were about to get much, much worse. According to what Gabe would tell Andrew Ross Sorkin of CNBC's Squawk Box, reported by Sorkin a day later by the time, eight minutes after market close, that Elon Musk's bizarre, sparsely worded, market-igniting tweet flashed across phones and laptop screens around the world. Gabe had already unloaded his vast short position at an enormous loss. Musk's tweet, which simply read, Game stonk, followed by a link to the Wall Street Bets board, sent out to his 42 million followers, had hit the market with the force of a musket bullet. The stock had immediately surged 60% and now showed no sign of letting up. There was no telling how high it could go, but the $1,000 figure that had spread across the WSB board no longer seemed like a pipe dream. At his desk, Gabe's phone felt like a lead weight against his ear. The conversations he'd been having, stretching back over the previous days of that week, had to have been some of the most difficult of his career, no matter what face he put on in public or via his spokespeople. There was no question in the minds of Gabe's colleagues and competitors in the industry that this had been an existential moment. Melvin Capital was right on the edge. And over that edge, Gabe would be facing disaster. But even in the face of such madness, Gabe was going to move forward. And in fact, two days earlier, on January 25th, He'd made an arrangement that could only be seen as forward-looking, enhancing Melvin's books even in the face of so much turmoil. In fairy tales and movies, people always talked about deals with the devil as if they were a bad thing. But on Wall Street, deals with devils were as commonplace as Canali suits and Ferragamo ties. There weren't many angels, and it was often the devils who knew how to get things done. Just as Gabe had had no choice but to dump his short position, Despite his protestations to the opposite, there was a general feeling that he'd also had no choice about what had to happen next. He had lost so much money already. Other funds and business media outlets were whispering bankruptcy, which Gabe maintained was ludicrous bullshit. But the firm had certainly hemorrhaged. And Gabe knew, better than most, the only real cure for bleeding was more blood. Chapter 19 Ken Griffin, the CEO, CIO, and founder of the Wall Street behemoth, Citadel, with $38 billion under management and through which, via subsidiary Citadel Securities, 40% of all retail stock trades made in the U.S. markets flowed, 
almost certainly wasn't sitting on a massive ivory-white throne made of skulls and the bleached and polished skeletal remains of the many enemies he'd vanquished on his way to the top of the financial industry. As he hit the disconnect button on the screen of his cell phone, then leaned back to better contemplate the deal he had made the Monday before and what he could, but definitely, absolutely, under any circumstances, wouldn't do next. Such a throne, if it had existed, which it most certainly did not, would have been just the sort of thing to set the mood for such contemplation. Even considering the great expense one would have to go through to move the damn thing from Citadel's main offices in Chicago down to their temporary pandemic headquarters in Palm Beach, Florida. If Ken had actually spent much of his morning squirming against the odd rib bones sticking up from said throne, he might also have noticed how unseasonably humid it was in his throne room. Palm Beach was breezier and more temperate than Miami, though it was still Florida. But Ken and Citadel hadn't had much choice. The pandemic had come on quickly, and the company had needed someplace ready, available, and suited for, arguably, the most powerful company in America. Eyebrows might have been raised when the firm had taken over an entire Four Seasons hotel, nearly every room, ballroom, and closet creating one of the largest and most secure bubbles in the entire world, containing not only Citadel's employees and the families that accompanied them, but the entire staff of the hotel, from the kitchen all the way to security, all quarantined together for the better part of the year. But the maneuver had allowed Citadel to continue serving its clients without so much as a hiccup through the entire pandemic and continuity was important when you were at the center of the largest financial system in the history of the world. In 2008, it had often been said that a handful of investment banks were too big to fail, because they serviced the American economy to such an extent that if they went under, it would threaten to bring down the system. With Citadel, sometimes it felt like the opposite was true. The American economy existed to service Citadel. Ken's path to world domination had started in Boca Raton, Florida, not far from where his company was currently waiting out the pandemic. In high school in the early 80s, he'd mastered computer programming, launching his first company in 11th grade, selling educational software via direct mail. Matriculating to Harvard in 1986, he'd shifted to stock trading, initiating his first fund with $265,000 he'd raised from friends and family in 1987 at the ripe age of 19. The smartest of the smart kids, he'd had his first brush with authority when the university had reminded him of the rules disallowing students from running businesses out of their dorm rooms. Perhaps the university's attention had something to do with the enormous satellite dish he'd attached to the roof of Cabot House so that he could better receive stock quotes. But Ken had avoided being shut down on a technicality, since his company had been incorporated in Florida and he'd quickly make a killing in the market drop of late 87 by shorting companies like the Home Shopping Network, while also profiting off inefficiencies in the bond market. His moxie and abilities had caught the attention of the famed Chicago investor Frank Meyer of Glenwood Capital, and when Ken graduated from college in three years, Meyer had offered him a million-dollar bankroll and an office in the Windy City. A profit of 70% in Ken's first year out of college gave him the confidence to set out on his own. He'd come up with the name Citadel because he believed it connoted strength in times of volatility. It was most likely a coincidence that it was also the sort of name that could strike terror in the heart of millions. From the start, Citadel was built around Ken's strengths, 
math, computer programming, a belief in technology, and some might add, a reportedly vicious temper. Over the next two decades, his fund grew to well over $10 billion under management, run out of a downtown Chicago skyscraper with a trading floor often described as secure as Fort Knox, guarded by innumerable security checks, and teeming with underlings who did not have wings and claws, but probably did tremble and cower at the sight of their leader, with or without his skull-laden throne. Citadel's alleged, alleged reputation as a financial sweatshop with revolving doors where traders were all compensated but toiled in constant fear of being culled spread throughout the industry, leading to one of the more famous instances of Wall Street laundry airing. As reported by Fortune magazine in 2007, Dan Loeb of Third Point Partners, a brilliant fund leader in his own right with a penchant for venomous letters, allegedly wrote in an email sent to Ken himself, I find the disconnect between your self-proclaimed good-to-great, Jim Collins-esque organization, and the reality of the gulag you created quite laughable. You are surrounded by sycophants, but even you must know that the people who work for you despise and resent you. I assume you know this, because I have read the employment agreements that you make people sign. Even so, Citadel flourished until the epic financial meltdown of 2008, when perhaps for the first time, Ken was reminded that as powerful as he was becoming, well on his way to gathering the rings of Middle-earth and almost ready to forge the one ring to rule them all, he wasn't, as of yet, invincible. Like most Wall Street funds and investment banks, Citadel was hit hard by the financial crash of 2008. At one point, Ken's fund dropped over 50%, losing $8 billion in valuation, and causing Ken to take the unique step of gating his fund preventing his investors from withdrawing their money as he rode out the storm. In an interview with Julie Siegel in 2017, conducted over a game of Uno, of all things, Ken explained what had gone wrong and how close he'd come to losing everything. When the investment bank Lehman had gone under, money markets had immediately cut off all lending, and at the time, Citadel had been highly leveraged. Almost eight to one, according to some reports, and lived on their ability to borrow. When the spigots closed, Citadel found itself dry. As Ken put it in the interview, his biggest mistake was not appreciating just how fragile the U.S. banking system had become. As his company floundered, CNBC parked television vans outside his Chicago offices, hoping to be the first to document Citadel's inevitable bankruptcy. For Ken, they were the worst days of my career. The worst was when Morgan Stanley's back was against the wall. You go home on a Friday, and if they didn't open for business on a Monday, you were probably gone. But miraculously, Ken and Citadel did survive. What Ken hadn't predicted were the bailouts that rescued much of the industry before it could entirely collapse. And even though the entire ordeal had been incredibly humiliating, Ken had learned a valuable lesson. Don't act like a bank unless you are a bank. On top of that, he'd realized he needed to think bigger. The fragility of the U.S. economy had nearly destroyed him. It wasn't enough that Citadel's walls were as strong and impenetrable as the name implied. The economy itself needed to be just as solid. Over the next decade, he endeavored to place Citadel at the center of the equity markets, using his company's superiority in math and technology to tie trading to information flow. Citadel Securities, the trading and market-making division of his company, which he'd founded back in 2003, 
grew by leaps and bounds as he took advantage of his algorithmic-driven abilities to read ahead of the market. Because he could predict where trades were heading faster and better than anyone else, he could outcompete large banks for trading volume, offering better rates while still capturing immense profits on the spreads between buys and sells. In 2005, the SEC had passed regulations that forced brokers to seek out middlemen like Citadel, who could provide the most savings to their customers. In part because of this move by the SEC, Ken's outfit was able to grow into the most effective and thus dominant middleman for trading. And especially for retail traders, who were proliferating in tune to the numerous online brokerages sprouting up in the decade after 2008. Citadel securities reached scale before the bigger banks even knew what had hit them. And once Citadel was at scale, it became impossible for anyone else to compete. Citadel's efficiency and its ability to make billions off the minute spreads between bids and asks, multiplied by millions upon millions of trades, made companies like Robinhood, with its zero fees, possible. Citadel could profit by being the most efficient and cheapest market maker on the street. Robinhood could profit by offering zero fees to its users, and the retail traders, on their couches and in their kitchens and in their dorm rooms, profited because they could now trade stocks with the same tools as their Wall Street counterparts. Win, win, win. Even despite the humidity of Palm Beach beating up on the skulls embedded in Ken's throne, if such a throne had indeed existed, which it most definitely did not, the pandemic had only enhanced Citadel's meteoric rise to wealth and power, as quarantines and the closure of offices, bars, restaurants, and everything else had led to a high of almost $7 billion in Citadel's trading revenue. No doubt the company was flying higher than it ever had, with profits rising more than 67%. With a net worth of over $16 billion, Ken himself landed on the Forbes' wealthiest list at number 28. But just because Ken had the world, and one could argue, the American economy at his feet, that didn't mean the pavement beneath him was always smooth. The call he'd just ended was certainly evidence that there were still things that could happen that even he, with all his algorithms and underlings and elven-forged all-powerful rings, couldn't have predicted. It would have been hard for Ken not to have sympathized with Gabe Plotkin and what he'd been through in the past few days. Though Gabe had worked for Ken only briefly when the star trader was still in his 20s, before he'd landed at Steve Cohen's shop, Ken knew he was one of the best in the business, and what was happening to Melvin could have happened to just about anyone on the street. Citadel, too, had supposedly, reportedly, lost money on the GameStop debacle, what was undoubtedly now the beginning of a short squeeze through its own investments. Though Ken, again, reportedly had nothing near the exposure of his fellow Titan, sometime rival, and Gabe's previous boss, Steve Cohen of Point 72. He'd lost enough that if he hadn't been having such a wonderful pandemic year, he might have raged a bit perhaps even tossed a few underlings into fire pits, or boiled the skin off a few competitors and added their femurs to the armrests of his throne. But in this moment of loss, there was also opportunity. Even Wall Street massacres could have silver linings. Although Gabe might not have admitted it on CNBC, Melvin Capital was wounded and in danger, similar to what Citadel had gone through after the fall of Lehman, which meant there was a place for a generous friend, or a couple of friends, to step in. Of course, there were more indirect ways that someone as powerful as Ken running a company as powerful as Citadel, which happened to sit at the center of the very retail trades and was effectively the backbone 
through its payment for order flow symbiosis of the online brokerage, that had led to the GameStop short squeeze could have put a finger on the scale. But that was something Ken and Citadel would never, under any circumstances, ever, no matter what people thought, no matter who said it, no matter how many congressmen or congresswomen or internet pundits or Reddit users or fake news journalists or armchair Wall Street buffs floated the idea, never, 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 and again, never, ever contemplate, let alone do. Las Vegas casinos didn't cheat anywhere near as often as people thought they did, for the simple reason that they didn't need to. The math was on their side. The same could be said for companies like Citadel, and, to a lesser extent, about Wall Street on the whole. The game was set up in their favor, and they didn't need to break the rules because the rules had been designed for them. Sure, Gabe Plotkin's Melvin Capital was now against the wall, similar to Morgan Stanley back in 2008. But that didn't make Gabe any less the golden boy, a winner, and there was nothing Ken liked more than getting into business with winners. He couldn't, and wouldn't, do anything unethical, ever, to tip the scales in Wall Street's favor, but he certainly could write Melvin Capital a check. Ken was, after all, very good at writing checks. For instance, in January 2019, he'd spent $238 million on an apartment in New York City, breaking the record for the most expensive home ever bought in the United States. He'd also bought a $122 million mansion in London, a $100 million home in the Hamptons, and a $130 million estate near Mar-a-Lago, just a long football throw from where he was now squatting in Palm Beach. And he wrote charitable checks that were as large as the ones he spent on homes. All told, he'd given almost $700 million to charities revolving around the arts and education, including a $125 million donation to the University of Chicago. He'd also spent handsomely on art, including $100 million on a Basquiat, $300 million on a Willem de Koenig, $60 million for a Cezanne, and $80 million for a Jasper Johns. Who knew how much he'd spent on his second wedding, which had taken place over two days in Versailles, and had included a reception in Marie Antoinette's private village, Ken also liked to write checks to politicians, both on the right and on the left, though reportedly much more frequently on the right. And he'd also, allegedly, spent a small fortune keeping photos of himself out of the press and off the internet, which was part of the reason why it was so hard to know for sure whether there was any chance at all that he truly was sitting on a throne made of skulls, while he thought about the check he was writing to Gabe Plotkin's Melvin Capital. Ken wasn't alone in the deal. Steve Cohen, whose terrifying reputation rivaled Ken's, had taken a smaller share of what would end up being a $2.75 billion infusion into Melvin Capital in exchange for an undisclosed stake in the company going forward. According to reports, Ken and Steve were not friends. Their rivalry had even made it into the press when, after as many as five of Cohen's portfolio managers had jumped ship to work at Citadel, Cohen had reacted badly refusing to shake one of the leaving manager's hands. But rivalry aside, to Ken, it apparently appeared a very good deal. Perhaps, his thinking went, Gabe was a star, and he would undoubtedly recover from what could be seen as a black swan event and return to his habit of making tons of profits on very sound shorts and longs. With the extra billions in its coffers, Melvin should be able to get right back on its feet, and Ken would get extremely favorable terms on his investment. No doubt such a bailout 
though Plotkin would vehemently oppose such a term, would play into the growing narrative on Reddit, Twitter, and in the mainstream media. That something dirty was afoot, that Wall Street cronyism and favoritism would find a way to halt the Wall Street bets revolt. But Ken Griffin was not afraid of Reddit and Twitter. Even if his story was beginning to read like some sort of millennial version of the French Revolution, storming the Bastille was one thing, storming Wall Street was quite another. Ken knew all about Marie Antoinette. He'd gotten married in her village, after all. However lavish her lifestyle, she'd never had $30 billion under management. Powerful men like Ken didn't break rules to get what they wanted, because, like the Vegas casinos, they didn't need to. As 2008 had taught him, the rules weren't there to protect the people. They were there to protect the system. The Reddit crowd took that to mean that the only way to win was to try to tear that system down. What they didn't realize was that there was a simpler path to victory. You didn't tear the system down. You became the system. And once you were the system, the rules were there to protect you. Chapter 20, January 27th, 2021. 10 a.m., 30 minutes after market open. GameStop price, a staggering $354.83. It took 2,000 years of scientific progress and a mini-apocalypse, Sarah thought to herself, as she absentmindedly ran her fingers over the screen of her laptop. But maybe the experts had gotten it wrong. Maybe the Earth really was flat. Her nails danced over the dozen or so two-inch squares on the screen as she rearranged them at random. Within each square was a woman, captured in a tiny, colorful fragment of her life. Sarah was seeing kitchens and living rooms and outdoor decks, and in one instance, the front seat of a car, something mid-range and ugly and probably American. The women were all smiling and anxious, not only because they were meeting for the first time in this abnormal and inhuman way, but because they were also sharing a moment that wasn't supposed to be like this. A three-dimensional moment, which wasn't supposed to be captured by a technology that was so utterly and painfully one dimension short. So let's talk breastfeeding, the moderator chimed from the center square, which was particularly colorful because she'd chosen a background instead of a view from her home, some sort of balcony overlooking a tiered European city Sarah couldn't name, even if she had been fully paying attention. As with most everything else, there are no wrong answers. Sarah was pretty sure there were plenty of wrong answers. A dozen pregnant women in a living room, sharing fears and hopes and surprises over finger sandwiches and Perrier, was self-limiting. The same women thrown onto a Zoom chat, once the anxiety had dispersed and without the filter of actual human contact, could take the conversation just about anywhere. Even so, Sarah knew she was being unfair. A few days ago, she had been looking forward to the get-together. Before today, she'd known the women only from their screen names on a Reddit pregnancy board for first-time mothers, and she'd been excited to put faces to the names. She hadn't expected, at the time she'd signed up, that something much more immediate would be competing for her attention. She supposed she should have canceled, but she knew that when her husband got home from work, he would ask about the Zoom party, and it was too early in their marriage for even little white lies but she wasn't ready to tell him the truth yet, either. She shifted her gaze from the laptop screen to her phone, which was sitting on the kitchen counter a few feet from her stool. 
The counter was faux marble and spotless. One of those shiny stretches of real estate that was halfway between island and the much less fancy bar. The kitchen surrounding it, and her, wasn't particularly large, and it wasn't very modern, but there was a lot of light streaming in through the oversized windows above the sink, and Sarah always kept everything sterling clean. Sure, it could be annoying to come home from a day of sweeping up the salon to go right back to a broom, but her husband worked much later than she did, and Sarah liked order. Which made it all the more surprising that she was so compelled, at the moment, by the chaos on her phone. The Wall Street bets board had been exploding for the past 15 hours, ever since Elon Musk had fired off his wild tweet, Game stonk! And the price of GME had skyrocketed. Even though Sarah still didn't have any shares herself, she'd barely slept. As soon as her husband had conked out, she'd started checking the board and had been reading it intermittently all night and morning. It was no shock that Musk's tweet had sent the board into a frenzy. Not only had he linked the tweet to Wall Street Bets for his 42 million followers, he was already an iconic figure to the Reddit mob, who worshipped him for his success, his anti-establishment attitudes, and his disruptive communication style. Many of them believed he was truly one of them, an autist, an ape, a retard, and certainly he knew what it was like to battle the Wall Street shorts and win. From the moment he tweeted, GME had not let up. When Sarah had watched the stock open above $350, only moments before her Zoom party had begun, she'd immediately turned back to the WSB board to follow the action. CNBC and the rest of the financial networks were for people who worked at desks and wore ties or business dresses. People like Sarah got their news from other people like Sarah on social media. The posts were coming so fast it was hard to keep up, and the sentiment behind them was utterly clear no longer relegated to subtext. The revolution was in full swing. From a user calling himself Hoosier Proud, I'm up five figures. Even if it crashes and I only make a hundred dollars, I'll rest happy knowing I helped take down these fucks. Make no mistake, they deserve everything coming to them. They all bullied up on a struggling company during a pandemic to push the stock price down and try and bankrupt GameStop while they make billions. Fuck them, fuck them so bad. And another, calling himself Hercules X Mulligan. These hedge fund types just don't get it. And with every video and tweet they put out railing against social media and Reddit, they're digging the hole deeper. This will fundamentally change the way stocks are traded forever. If they think their losses are going to stop at GME, they are sorely mistaken. And flying rubber duck. GME will reach $1,000 as the Friday short options expire. We must bleed the short hedge funds dry and redistribute the wealth to us normies. We proved the world wrong by getting Tesla to $2,700. With Elon Musk and BlackRock, we will beat the 1%. And another from Zero on Law. Hitting the bullseye, dead center. Oh, I'm fully aware that I may end up a bag holder but it's worth being a bag holder to stick it to those Wall Street fucks who've gamed the system for so long at our expense. There was no doubt now that the movement had gone far beyond DFV and his YOLO posts. Sarah didn't know the exact numbers, but she'd read that the WSB board itself had added millions of new members in just the past 12 hours. Within a month, the community would be over 9 million strong. Added to that, a thriving segment of the board had also populated the social network Discord 
talking up GME, targeting Melvin and the other Wall Street shorts, putting voice to the dozens of theories, conspiracy and other, of what might happen as the week progressed. The crazy thing was, so far, everything the retarded apes had said was going to occur actually had. On the positive side, the short squeeze was clearly in effect, and Melvin, Citron, and their ilk had scrambled, or were scrambling to cover. On the negative side, there was a clear sense that the conservative business media was spinning the story against the Reddit community, asking again and again if what they were doing was legal, or if it was some sort of collusion, or even a pump and dump. Many on the board kept warning of an impending move by government, thinking that sooner or later, someone powerful was going to step in and try to pass legislation over retail trading. The feeling, overt, not subtle, was that Wall Street couldn't let this continue, and that government was somehow just an extension of Wall Street. Sarah didn't know if any of that was true. But the hedge funds were clearly rattled, and the Reddit community seemed more determined than ever. Almost without meaning to, she found herself switching from the WSB board to a Robinhood app. A moment later, she was looking at GameStop, that staggering price, and below it a wonderful green arrow pointing up, and beneath that, a graph that was even greener, like a forest-covered mountain range. The day's trading volume was already immense as well, and rising by the minute. To the right of the volume, she found herself gazing at the beckoning trade button. All she needed to do was press it, and she would be part of the action. She knew she had missed out on so much already, waiting so long. But what did she really have to lose getting in late? If the retards and apes continued to be right, held their diamond hands, the stock could go much, much higher. And even if Wall Street did figure out a way to fire back, if the government stepped in, even if Sarah lost, at least she could say she had been part of something great, of the little guys sticking it to the elite, sticking it to the fat cats who were making fortunes off a global pandemic, while people died and even more lost their jobs. She really and truly wanted to be involved, and this would be her thing, hers alone. She could continue to keep it a secret, until maybe one day when her son or daughter grew up. She could tell him or her about it. They could laugh together about the ridiculous memes, and maybe Sarah would be able to show her child how once, just once, the little guys had stuck together and won. She didn't have a lot of money in her Robin Hood account. With the price where it was, moving fast, she could only afford a handful of shares. But still, it would be something. The carousel of pregnant rectangles completely forgotten now, she touched that trade button with her finger. A fraction of a second later, her screen was asking her to enter a dollar amount, one after another. Ten shares, at a target price of $354, $3,540 in total. After she reviewed the amount and sent the order through, she began to tremble. Or perhaps it was just her phone. The confetti was a nice additional touch, but Sarah was already feeling fireworks up and down her spine. She was finally in the game. Chapter 21 Do not reply to this email, please. Just read it. Do not sell anything. If you touch anything in my account, I will likely have an aneurysm and die. Even if I'm up $10 million, don't touch my account. Even if I'm down $50,000, don't touch my account. It is mine to gain and mine to lose. Just wanted to say that because things are going to get crazy, and you've done rash things when things have gotten crazy. 
You owe me ten times whatever gains I miss out on if you touch my account. This wording is extreme, but necessary given your past habits of selling based on impulse with no research and my worry that you will do that with the shit-ton money I'm going to make. Please do not reply to this email. I'm not fucking selling. If you reply, I will get distracted more and I don't want that at all. Love you very much. I also love money. But I love you more. I just get forceful when it comes to this because things are hard enough to manage emotionally and I need full backing that nobody will get in the way. I'm not phased by paper profits going down 100k in a day. But I will be stressed and annoyed if people bug me about it or try to sell for me. Please do not reply to this email. Love, Jeremy. Jeremy's entire body shook as he crouched at the top of the narrow stairwell leading up to the fourth floor of his apartment building, cradling his laptop with both hands as he read, reread, and reread again the email he had just sent, which was splashed across the top of the screen. He'd regretted the missive the minute he'd hit send, and he partially blamed the harshness of his words and the forceful demands he'd made on a lack of sleep, since he'd tossed and turned for two straight nights, intermittently checking Wall Street bets, Discord, and his trading account for after-hours news and motion. Deep down, though, he knew there was more going on than exhaustion, or even the sense of panic he was feeling, concerning the very real possibility that his dad might actually take control of his account and sell his GME. Jeremy had battled anxiety issues many times in his life, and more than once it had been a losing fight. The beginning of his sophomore year, he'd even had to take time away from school to center himself, and he could still clearly remember how bad things could get. Heart palpitations, insomnia, headaches, brain fog. He was trembling now, but back then the tremors could get so bad that the act of scrolling through the WSB board would have been impossible. Two years ago, it had been the pressure of college and social anxiety that had knocked him down. These were normal worries that most college kids experienced, but because of some twist of personality or brain chemistry, or because of some childhood trauma, and he surmised his father's cancer stood out as a potential contributing factor. For him, things could spiral. Sometimes, his own emotional state made him feel as if he were playing one of those old flight simulator games that were all the rage when he was a kid. Once the plane started to spin, it was hard as hell to flatten those wings out before you hit the ground. This was different, because the anxiety wasn't the result of hardship, social troubles, personal trauma, or things going wrong. His entire body felt wired because things were going much too right. The last time he checked GME, around noon, the price was hovering around $380 a share, which meant that at that moment, the GameStop in his account was worth over $130,000. It was an incredible fortune for someone his age. He turned school textbook money into a life-changing nest egg and he should have been dancing around the pool outside the apartment complex. The Japanese electropop turned up all the way to 11. And in fact, he had been on the verge of celebrating, his Kanako Ito dialed up and ready to blow, when he'd gotten the text from his father. Apparently, his dad had sold all 1,000 of his own shares the day before, when the stock had hit $100. In a calmer moment, Jeremy might have understood that what his father had done actually made a fair amount of sense, his father had bought his shares at around $17, similar to Jeremy, for $17,000, and had now sold them for $100,000. It was an incredible win, and any investor should have been happy with a six times return. But to Jeremy, 
It hadn't seemed like a prudent bit of profit-taking. It had, to him, seemed like betrayal. Not just of Jeremy, but of the whole movement. He'd explained it to his dad as well as he could. They were fighting a battle with Wall Street, and the only way they'd truly win was if they held their shares. The minute those diamond hands began to weaken, it would all topple and then collapse. His dad clearly didn't get it. To him, this was just another stock play. They'd gotten lucky, and it was time to take their gains. Further, Jeremy feared that his dad might go farther than selling his own shares. If he believed that Jeremy was being foolish, that he was losing control, he might step in. When Jeremy had left school his sophomore year, his father had taken over his bank accounts, because Jeremy had been in no shape to deal with things like rent and student loans and tuition. Which meant his dad clearly had the power to take over again. In the logical portion of his brain, Jeremy knew he was being paranoid. After he'd received the text, he'd immediately called his dad, demanding an explanation. His dad had told him that he'd sold while watching CNBC. An interview on the channel had led him to believe that Melvin Capital had completely covered their short position, which meant that maybe the short squeeze would end as quickly as it had begun. Jeremy had literally screamed at him. Nobody on the WSB board believed that could be true. The short float was still astronomical. And the amount of money Melvin would have had to come up with was equally stratospheric. This was a war, and even CNBC had been weaponized. By selling early, his dad had lost out on hundreds of thousands of dollars. More than that, he had shown weakness, capitulated, handed his shares over to the shorts so they could save themselves from bankruptcy. Jeremy had felt bad the minute he'd hung up the phone. He'd used a lot of bad language, had spoken to his father in a way he'd never had before. And he knew his dad regretted the sale, or at least the fortune that one more day of waiting would have handed him. Further, his dad had apologized for going back on his word, a promise that he'd made when he'd bought the stock that he wouldn't sell until Jeremy sold. But still, Jeremy had trouble seeing past his anger and his fear. The fog of war could be a terrifying place, even if it was mostly in your own head. Jeremy closed his laptop and started up the steps again, toward his best friend Carl's apartment. He was already late for that afternoon's study group with his bubble, and staring at the letter that he'd just sent his father wasn't going to help steady his wings or get him any closer to landing that plane. Instead, in his mind, he constructed a plan. He was going to his study bubble, and he was going to try his best not to check the stock price or think about GME. He'd already removed a sell limit he'd placed on the stock that morning for a pie-in-the-sky, totally lunar $5,000, and his goal now would be to simply hold every one of his shares for an entire year. Among the many posts he'd read as he'd scoured the WSB board that day, he'd settled more than once on DFV's latest YOLO update. The man's account had gone legendary. His shares and options combined, at closing the day before January 26th, had topped $22 million. Today, now, Jeremy calculated, they were worth close to $50 million. A true fortune. And yet DFV wasn't selling. And if DFV wasn't selling, that was good enough for Jeremy. Okay, let's start with the vector 101 and add in... Jeremy, you still with us? Two hours later, Jeremy looked up as he heard his name just in time to see the tortilla chip pirouetting through the air toward his head. 
It hit him square between the eyes, bouncing off his forehead toward the shag carpet that ran the length of the small living room where he was sitting, cross-legged, in front of a heaping pile of linear algebra books. Directly across from him, Carl was grinning like an idiot, his hand in a bowl filled with more edible triangular projectiles. His lanky body perched on an oversized beanbag chair. Carl's girlfriend, Josie, next to him, was in a flowery dress that made little sense in January, but brightened up her and Carl's apartment, because most everything else they owned, from that beanbag chair to the carpet to the pair of couches pressed against the walls, to the drapes covering most of the sliding glass doors leading to their balcony, was done up in varying shades of gray. Jeremy wasn't sure why his friends loved muted colors so much. They were two of the most chipper and kindest people he'd ever met. Clearly in love and planning to spend their lives together, and were usually brimming with energy. Even beyond wrestling, which Carl had done competitively in high school, and yoga, which they both enjoyed daily, they were obsessed with everything fitness-related. Their bedroom and closets were filled with workout equipment, stretching mats and yoga balls and free weights and tension bands, just about anything that could make you stronger or thinner or tighter. But still, the only flashes of color in the fourth-floor apartment came from Josie's dress and the bowl of homemade salsa next to Carl's armory of tortilla chips. Even Michael, who was seated to Josie's left, on a smaller beanbag chair, was dressed in somber sweats, pants and matching hoodie, which were not exactly gray, but dark green enough to count. Then again with Michael, the drab look made sense. As much as Jeremy had bonded with the shaggy-haired, perpetually unshaven fellow math and psychology major, Michael's personality could be about as sparkling as the linear algebra problem Carl had been midway through when he'd hit Jeremy with the chip. Then again, Jeremy couldn't really be sure how boring that particular linear algebra problem was, though in the scheme of things, it would be like choosing between those various shades of gray. Jeremy was a math major, and even he thought most of linear algebra was boring. But at the moment, Carl could have been showing the group pictures of mechanized super robots, and Jeremy would have still been equally distracted. Seeing the concerned looks on the faces of his friends, Jeremy realized that he'd been mistaken to think he could get through the study session without any of them noticing the state he was in. After mumbling his way through the small talk before they'd gotten started, he had barely contributed at all, and in fact, the few times he'd chimed in, he'd gotten the math problems wrong, making mistakes that Michael wouldn't have made in his sleep. And it wasn't just the study group. For days now, Jeremy had been having trouble in all of his classes. He hadn't handed in any of his statistics homework on time, and he'd completely missed two psychology Zoom sessions. As they approached the winter exam period, he was falling farther and farther behind, and he knew he was courting disaster. If this continued, if his mental state deteriorated any further, he was going to actually fail his classes. You guys following this GameStop shit? Jeremy's eyes went wide his thoughts snapping to attention like window blinds whipping up. Michael had taken his phone out while Carl had been celebrating his perfect tortilla aim and was reading news headlines to pass the time. Apparently, Elon Musk tweeted something about it last night. These people are nuts. I mean, GameStop? It's like a $25 billion company now. That's almost the size of Chrysler, all because of a Reddit board. Jeremy opened his mouth, then stopped himself. It was no surprise that Michael knew about GameStop. Anyone who watched television or read the newspapers or opened Twitter now knew about GameStop. 
It was being talked about everywhere, even in the monologues of the late-night talk show hosts. And yet to Jeremy, it felt so strange, his worlds colliding. Still, neither of these worlds felt real. A COVID bubble, three people pushed together by an absurd black swan event, talking about a second, equally unlikely black swan event. But I think the other shoe's about to drop, Michael added. And it's not going to be pretty. What do you mean? Jeremy asked. Josie and Carl were staring at him, probably because of the tone of his voice. But he remained focused on Michael, who was still reading his phone. They just shut down the Wall Street Bet server on Discord. Completely kicked it off, I think permanently. What? Jeremy felt his cheeks growing warm. Who did? Michael shrugged. Says here the company banned it for hate speech. Hate speech? Josie asked. Who do they hate? The Wall Street Bet server has been on our trust and safety team's radar for some time due to occasional content that violates our community guidelines, including hate speech, glorifying violence, and spreading misinformation. Sounds like a good time. Today we decided to remove the server and its owner from Discord. This is nuts, Jeremy said. They can just do this? Why now? Gets worse, Michael said. Looks like Wall Street Bets has frozen too. Says here the site is going private temporarily, closed to new users. Why? Jeremy said, hastily pulling his own phone out of his pocket. They say too many people joining at the same time. Like three million new users in the past day. Jeremy was barely listening as he scrolled through the site. He still had access as he was an existing member. But Michael was right. Wall Street Bets was going temporarily dark. Seems mighty suspicious to me, Michael said. He was almost grinning. But Jeremy didn't see the humor in this at all. With Discord gone and Wall Street Bets shackled. Discord goes down because of bad language. Right now, Michael said, while the stock is flying, why not a week ago or a month ago? And then the WSB board goes dark? Doesn't sound like a coincidence to me. Sounds more like a first strike. Jeremy looked at him. It's a pretty common strategy, actually, Carl said. I mean in war. You knock out the enemy's communication, they can't talk to each other, they can't organize, and that's when you'd really hit them. Jeremy rose from the carpet without saying anything and started for the door. The others stared after him, and after a beat, Josie followed. You okay? You want to talk about anything? Jeremy didn't know what to say. Discord was gone. Wall Street bets was dark. He didn't believe in conspiracies, but the timing seemed incredibly suspect. No doubt, the Discord site had been getting complaints about hate speech, or whatever they wanted to call it, for some time. Certainly, the WSB board had dealt with ugly language since its inception, and sure, tons of people were signing up, by the millions. But Reddit was a huge site, with hundreds of millions of users. Why couldn't WSB handle a few million accounts? Was this a prelude to a bigger shutdown? Was this foreshadowing the closure of the entire WSB subreddit? Could it really have something to do with the powerful Wall Street funds and their efforts to shut down the short squeeze? Could it really be some sort of a first strike? Wall Street was powerful. Firms like Melvin Capital and Citadel had billions of dollars at their disposal. Jeremy and his fellow Longs were weak and small, like ants compared to Melvin. But there were millions upon millions of them a veritable sea of ants. United, that many ants could topple just about anything. Still, if they couldn't communicate, 
if they couldn't unite? What if it really was a first strike? If you were Wall Street and you had just fired that first strike, what would you do next? Jeremy didn't need to finish the thought because Carl had already finished it for him just a moment ago. That's when you'd really hit them and hit them hard. Chapter 22 January 28th, 2021 A little after 5 a.m. Vlad Tenev came awake suddenly to a barrage of panicking technology. His cell phone vibrating and blinking on the table next to his bed, his laptop computer pinging frantically to itself as it was pelted by email after rapid-fired email. Even, perhaps, a landline lost somewhere in his sprawling California home, a short commute by car or bike or skateboard from the Robin Hood offices in Menlo Park. Vlad rubbed his eyes, chasing the last vestiges of sleep away. He couldn't remember what he'd been dreaming about, no doubt something having to do with democratized finance and level playing fields, or maybe renewable energy, healthy drinking water, a living minimum wage. But it had probably involved cats, and possibly even GameStop, because by the time he'd gone to sleep the night before, everyone, everywhere, had been talking about GameStop. He rolled over in his bed and reached for the phone first, hoping to quell the electronic onslaught before it woke his wife and toddler. He'd made it a mission in life to carve out hours in the morning for his young family, but running a quickly growing company meant he couldn't completely cut himself off from the outside world. If Robin Hood's meteoric rise had taught him anything, it was that shit happened fast. Close your eyes, and you never knew how much was going to change before you opened them again. Even so, the messages, from Orlando of all places, that Vlad saw flashing across his phone's screen caught him by surprise. Before he even realized it, he was up out of the bed and sprinting across the carpet toward his computer. From the messages and the emails, it was a quick jump to a Google Hangout, where a group of his highest-level employees were already waiting for him. Jim in Orlando, of course, and a handful of execs from clearing, trading, and legal. Jim was leading the show, not only because he had the expertise to understand what the hell was going on, but because he'd already been mentally dealing with the disaster for a few hours now. Jim had gotten the first call from his head of treasury at 5.50 a.m., East Coast time, more than three hours ago, which in itself had been strange. Usually, Jim was briefed every morning at 5.30 a.m. on the capital requirements that arrived, each day at exactly 5.11 a.m. Eastern from the NSCC, a division of the DTCC, the federally regulated body tasked with overseeing Robinhood's trading and the two-day clearing process that took place between every retail trade. When the call had come in 20 minutes late, Jim had wondered if something had gone wrong. But he couldn't have predicted that it was something so unimaginable that his own team had spent the extra time trying to figure out if it was real or some software-driven mistake. Even after they'd spent the 20 minutes calling around to make sure the number that had been sent over by the clearing agency was correct, Jim had made them go back and check again. Then he had called himself, speaking to his liaison at the NSCC, and only once he'd confirmed and reconfirmed the number had he reached out to Menlo Park. Vlad stared at the number that now dominated a section of his computer screen, then shook his head. $3.7 billion. This can't be real, someone on the hangout said, putting words to what they were all thinking. 
but the number had been checked and checked again. Overnight, the NSCC had requested, nay, demanded, $3 billion, $700 million to cover their capital requirements for the current trading going through Robinhood's brokerage account. Vlad tried to calm himself as he contemplated what the number meant, and how, in God's name, the NSCC could have possibly come up with such a figure. By now, though, it had been a steep learning curve. He was fairly well-versed on the basics of how clearing worked. When a customer bought shares in a stock on Robinhood, say GameStop, at a specific price, the order was first sent to Robinhood's in-house clearing brokerage, who in turn bundled the trade to a market maker for execution. The trade was then brought to a clearinghouse, who oversaw the trade all the way to the settlement. During this time period, the trade itself needed to be insured against anything that might go wrong, such as some sort of systemic collapse or a default by either party. Although in reality, in regulated markets, this seemed extremely unlikely. While the customer's money was temporarily put aside, essentially in an untouchable safe for the two days it took for the clearing agency to verify that both parties were able to provide what they had agreed upon, the brokerage house, Robinhood, had to insure the deal with a deposit, money of its own, separate from the money that the customer had provided, that could be used to guarantee the value of the trade. In financial parlance, this collateral was known as VAR, or value at risk. For a single trade of a simple asset, it would have been relatively easy to know how much the brokerage would need to deposit to ensure the situation. The risk of something going wrong would be small, and the total value would be simple to calculate. If GME was trading at $400 a share, and the customer wanted 10 shares, there was $4,000 at risk, plus or minus some nominal amount due to minute vagaries in market fluctuations during the two-day period before settlement. In such a simple situation, Robinhood might be asked to put up $4,000 in change, in addition to the $4,000 of the customer's buy order, which remained locked in that safe. The deposit requirement calculation grew more complicated as layers were added onto the trading situation. A single trade had low inherent risk. Multiplied to millions of trades, the risk profile began to change. The more volatile the stock, in price and or volume, the riskier a buy or sell became. Of course, the NSCC did not make these calculations by hand. They used sophisticated algorithms to digest the numerous inputs coming in from the trade, type of equity, volume, current volatility, where it fit into a brokerage's portfolio as a whole, and spit out a recommendation of what sort of deposit would protect the trade. And this process was entirely automated. The brokerage house would continually run its trading activity through the federal clearing system and would receive its updated deposit requirements as often as every 15 minutes while the market was open. Pre-market, during a trading week, that number would come in at 5.11 a.m., East Coast time, usually right as Jim in Orlando was finishing his morning coffee. Robin Hood would then have until 10 a.m. to satisfy the deposit requirement for the upcoming day of trading, or risk being in default, which could lead to an immediate shutdown of all operations. Usually, the deposit requirement was tied closely to the actual dollars being spent on the trades. A near equal number of buys and sells in a brokerage house's trading profile lowered its overall risk. And though volatility was common, especially in the past half decade, even a two-day settlement period came with an acceptable level of confidence 
that nobody would fail to deliver on their trades. To that respect, over the past week, even with the incredible volume of trading taking place in what were being called meme stocks, particularly GME, Robinhood's deposit requirements had been high, but understandable. On January 25th, the deposit requirement at the start of the day had been $125 million. By the 26th, as GameStop's volume had exploded and the price had shot toward the moon, Robinhood's deposit requirement had risen to a heavy $291 million. A significant figure, beyond anything they'd seen before, but still manageable. Even after Elon Musk's tweet and the wild volumes and price actions that had instantly occurred, Robinhood's deposit requirement with the NSCC had dropped to $282 million. The number Vlad was looking at right now was a magnitude higher than the deposit requirement just 24 hours ago. $3.7 billion. It seemed obscene. When the number had first come in, and once Jim had pulled his jaw back off the floor, he dug into how the NSCC had come up with such a staggering figure. Once he'd gotten his liaison at the agency on the phone, he'd broken down the charge into two parts. The NSCC's algorithm had taken in all the risk inputs from the trading volumes and volatility of the day before and come up with a VAR of $1.3 billion, and had added to that an excess capital premium charge of an additional $2.2 billion in change. This additional charge had been added because the original VAR charge far exceeded Robinhood's net capital. Thus, the original call being so large that Robinhood didn't have the cash on hand to cover it had led to a multiplying effect, an additional charge to cover the risk of Robinhood not being able to cover it. At the moment, Robinhood had close to $700 million on deposit with the NSCC, which left them approximately $3 billion short. Logically, Vlad could see how the NSCC's computers might have come up with such a huge deposit requirement. Not only were the retail trades coming in at a volume volatility that was unprecedented, but they were almost all on the buy side. There was no way to offset some of the risk with sell trades, and since GameStop was itself an inherently risky equity, with such a huge short float, the overall risk grew exponentially. But still, Vlad had never seen or imagined anything like this. To compare, the biggest special charge Robinhood had ever gotten from the NSCC before had been for $25 million. Now the NSCC was asking for an additional $2.2 billion on top of its $1.3 billion VAR. Once Jim had confirmed that the numbers weren't a mistake, that the charges were real and they only had until 10 a.m. to make good on that ungodly deposit, the question quickly became, what could they do? First and foremost, despite what anybody might think or say or publish after the fact or scream on Twitter or Reddit or Clubhouse, Vlad believed that his main responsibility was to the Robinhood users. In line with this thinking, Vlad felt that the only option that was truly off the table was failing to meet those deposit requirements, because that would lead to a potential shutdown meaning those users wouldn't be able to buy or sell anything, let alone GameStop. Barring failure, the next option down the line was to somehow lower that deposit to at least a dollar range that would be feasible to cover with Robinhood's existing cash and its lines of credit. To this end, Robinhood had less than five hours, and there was simply no way they could raise $3 billion in that amount of time. 
but that didn't mean the situation was hopeless. Vlad had spent the past few days watching the GameStop drama like everyone else. And despite, again, what everyone might say after the fact, he felt philosophically aligned with the retail traders. He hadn't built Robinhood for the hedge funds or the Wall Street suits. He had built it so that regular people could compete with the hedge funds on the Wall Street suits. And to that end, he'd succeeded. His reported 20 million users had an average age somewhere between 28 and 31, with an average account size of just $3,500. This stood in stark contrast to even E-Trade, whose average account size was $100,000. Robinhood's base was made up of average Joes and Janes, sitting on their couches in their living rooms and dorm rooms, finding cash in between the cushions next to old slices of pizza and missing keys, and investing that money in the stonks they loved. Stonks, like GameStop. When people like Mark Cuban, the mega-billionaire and TV star, tweeted, as he had the day before, I gotta say, I love, love what is going on with hashtag Wall Street bets. All of those years of high-frequency traders, front-running retail traders, now speed and density of information and retail trading is giving the little guy an edge. Even my 11-year-old traded with them and made money. Vlad might well have cheered right along with him. Vlad didn't know personally the amateur trader calling himself DFV on Reddit who had made a fortune after doing his own diligent research into the company. But it was precisely the stories surrounding DFV's success that Robinhood had been built to enable. So it was only after much internal, soul-scarring, deeply spiritual agony, and after much discussion with their representatives at the NSCC, that Vlad and his team came to the only conclusion they felt they could. They needed to lower the risk profile that had led to the obscene deposit requirement. To do so, they would restrict trading on a handful of stocks. Specifically, they would no longer allow any Robinhood users to buy any more shares of GameStop or the 13 other meme equities that were causing so much havoc. It wasn't an easy decision, but it was perfectly legal. Robinhood had the right to restrict trading on any symbol for any reason, and other brokerages would be forced to act in similar fashion by what was going on in the market that week. And by restricting buying and not selling of an equity, Robinhood didn't feel they were hurting their users per se. Their traders could still sell their GameStop, they just couldn't buy. And after all, how could you lose money by not being able to buy a stock at what, in all likelihood, must be very close to its high? Closing down the buy side of a stock seemed the perfect fix, because it would instantly lower the risk profile for the trading day, which would give the NSCC a new input to its algorithm. The fix was so simple, in fact, it literally was as easy as pressing a button. Specifically, the one Vlad had right in front of him on the Robinhood dashboard that would shut down the buy and simultaneously send out an instant, automated email informing the users. An operational system that, well, maybe should have been exceptionalized, but one that could solve their problem in a matter of minutes. And that was, in fact, what happened. Once the decision to close down the buy side of GameStop was made, the NSCC returned to Robinhood with an updated deposit requirement. They'd entirely waived the excess capital premium charge of $2.2 billion and arrived at a full net deposit requirement of around $1.4 billion in total. Robinhood immediately added a bit over $700 million to the slightly under $700 million that they already had on deposit and met all their requirements for the day.
Vlad leaned back from his computer, pondering what they had just done, perhaps more than a little oblivious to what might come next. Of course, there would be consequences to stopping 20 million users from being able to buy GameStop at that particular moment in time. But wouldn't the consequences of Robinhood being shut down? Of those same 20 million customers not being able to sell GameStop, if the stock had started to crater, have been infinitely worse? Robinhood had met its deposit requirement. Though one could quibble about the language, the move it was making was more about compliance than liquidity. Robinhood was plenty liquid. The massive deposit requirement hadn't been related to margin or leverage or options, since Robinhood had already restricted those maneuvers as the weeks had progressed. The word liquidity didn't really apply. It was one of those gotcha terms used by reporters to aim blame. You couldn't blame Robinhood for the vagaries of T plus two clearing, or for a black swan event that had led to a $3.7 billion charge. And you certainly couldn't blame Vlad himself, or derive baseless, wild conspiracy theories from what could easily be described as the result of a series of logical, if coincidental, occurrences. Melvin's short position had exploded into a short squeeze because the retail traders on Wall Street bets had targeted GameStop, had bought and bought and bought, causing massive volume and price volatility. Robinhood, through which a large portion of those retail traders had bought their GameStop, had suddenly faced a massive deposit requirement because of that volatility, and had been forced to shut down buying of GameStop. True, one could argue this in turn would stop the rise in GameStop's stock, poking a pin in the short squeeze, potentially allowing the hedge funds to cover. And also true, Citadel, who, by coincidence, handled most of Robinhood's trades, and by coincidence, provided the lion's share of Robinhood's profits through its payment-for-order flow mechanism, now had a financial stake in Melvin Capital, most associated with those shorts, and had just helped lift, not bail, Melvin out of its precarious financial situation via a $2.75 billion infusion of cash along with Steve Cohen. And also, also true, all of this had, by even unlikelier coincidence happened right after the GameStop rallying cries on Discord and Wall Street bets had been, at least temporarily, silenced or curtailed. But, from Vlad's perspective, all of this was purely circumstantial. His users might not be happy, but what Robinhood had done was, no matter how they might see it, no matter how many coincidences and conspiracy theories might stack up, really for their own good. Vlad's job going forward wasn't to pontificate about conspiracy theories or unlikely coincidences. It was simply to make sure such a thing never happened again. Part 3 I am not a cat. Keith Gill What's an exit strategy? Keith Gill Chapter 23 January 28th, 2021 Three minutes before market close, Wilmington, Massachusetts. Keeping customers informed through market volatility. Our mission at Robinhood is to democratize finance for all. We're proud to have created a platform that has helped everyday people from all backgrounds shape their financial futures and invest for the long term. We continuously monitor the markets and make changes where necessary. In light of recent volatility, 
We are restricting transactions for certain securities to position closing only, including AMC, BB, BBBY, EXPR, GME, KOSS, NAKD, and NOK. We also raised margin requirements for certain securities. Keith Gill wasn't certain how he'd ended up on his back on the floor of his basement, staring up at the ceiling, as his thoughts swirled like a wild cyclone behind his eyes. But it seemed the appropriate place to ride out the last few minutes of the craziest trading day he'd ever experienced. Perhaps one of the craziest trading days in the history of the street. Keith still couldn't fully unpack what he'd witnessed. He knew he was not alone in this. He was not alone. On his desk, one of his screens was open to the Wall Street bets board, which had been made fully public again and was now mostly chronicling a volcanic eruption of anger, conspiracy theories, and despair. Most of it revolved around Robin Hood, and could be summed up by one of the many tweets Keith had stumbled upon while riffling through the site that morning. This one by another YouTube user, whose Twitter handle was at OMGitsBirdman. An app named Robin Hood stealing from the poor and giving to the rich. Can't make this up. Keith had read Robin Hood's blog post and received their email at the same time as everyone else who had a Robin Hood account, even though it was probably the result of an automated function that involved a massive mailing list, it had seemed directed squarely at him. We are restricting transactions for certain securities. In Keith's mind, they should have just come right out and said it. The millions of Robinhood customers could no longer buy GameStop through the app, along with a half dozen other meme stocks, basically anything that Melvin Capital and their Wall Street colleagues had shorted and were trying to cover. And it wasn't just Robinhood that had restricted buying into GME. Many of the other online brokerages, such as E-Trade, Interactive Brokers, Webull, TD Ameritrade, and Schwab, had enacted varying degrees of restrictions of their own. But the one uniting feature was that all of the restrictions squarely targeted the same group of traders, regular people, on their couches and in their basements. The very people who were buying GameStop could no longer buy GameStop. As a brokerage firm, we have many financial requirements including SEC net capital obligations and clearinghouse deposits. Some of these requirements fluctuate based on volatility in the markets and can be substantial in the current environment. These requirements exist to protect investors and the markets. To the Reddit board and across Twitter, Robinhood's announcement via blog and email seemed immediately suspect. As much as they were trying to couch it as if it were some clinical, unemotional, perfectly acceptable maneuver, it appeared from the outside like a direct attempt to stifle the short squeeze in progress. Only the retail traders had been shut off, and only the buy side of GME had been shut down. Institutions were free to continue to cover, which they could now do in a controlled fashion, without the pressure of millions of Redditors buying, even as the shorts continued to cover. The stock had nowhere to go but down. Keith had watched it all happen in real time. Pre-market, the stock had momentarily crossed $500 a share, halfway to the insane $1,000 price target that had been predicted all over the WSB board and seemed utterly unstoppable. Then Robinhood had pulled the plug, and it was like a shotgun blast to the short squeeze. The stock had plunged more than 40%, opening at $265 a share. From there, it had been a roller coaster, the stock descending as low as $112.25 then struggling back up toward its close, minutes away, 
of $193.60. If there was any question as to whether you could point squarely at Robinhood and the other online brokerages as to why the short squeeze had apparently imploded, you needed only to look at the daily trading volumes. With the buy side effectively squelched, the volume of shares traded had dropped to almost half of what it had been the day before. Compared to Monday and Tuesday of that week, the volume had descended by two-thirds. Robinhood and the other brokerages had already begun to indicate that they'd soon take their feet off the brakes. Robinhood would shortly allow some level of buying to begin again, now that their capital requirements had been met. But still, restrictions would stay in place. Robinhood's users would be able to purchase only a highly limited number of shares in GameStop, as little as a single share, for a time. Which really did make it seem like the company was doing its best to end the rally for good. Keith had watched it all happen from his basement lair with a strange sense of detachment. He still had trouble thinking of all this as something he had been involved in, let alone been responsible for. He liked to think of himself as an innocent bystander. He wasn't the first or the only person to buy GameStop. But some might say what he had started had snowballed into a movement. All he had done in his mind was try to educate people through his YouTube streams and WSB posts. He had been honest throughout, hadn't advised anybody to do anything, had always made it clear that people needed to do their own research and that the market was inherently risky. And boy, had that been an epic understatement. He was about to post his YOLO update, and even with his eyes closed, he could see the red glow of a single day's losses. At yesterday's close, his account was worth over $44 million. It had risen more than $20 million that day alone. Pre-market today, it had hit a high of well over $50 million. And then, when Robinhood had pulled the plug, Keith had lost nearly half that in a matter of minutes. Even now, he'd hardly recovered. His update would show a trading account value of a little over $33 million, a loss of almost $15 million on the day. $15 million gone. Like smoke dissipating in a stiff wind. And yet he was still sitting on a massive fortune the kind of money that wasn't just life-changing, but potentially generational. His kids' kids would have a cushion in life if he managed it properly. He'd be able to consummate a dream he'd had since childhood of building an indoor track in his hometown of Brockton. He knew that many people on the WSB board were being hurt way worse than he was. Most hadn't bought GameStop anywhere near $5 a share. The vast majority had bought once the short squeeze had begun, and many had bought near the top. They were losing money, and it seemed extremely unfair. Even the Wall Street Bets board itself had taken to Twitter to voice their dismay at the turn of events. A tweet from the moderators had been posted that morning. Individual investors are being stripped of their ability to trade on at Robinhood app. Meanwhile, hedge funds and institutional investors can continue to trade as normal. What do you call a market that removes retail investors' ability to buy, to save institutional investors' shorts? And it was clear that the anger was no longer confined to the WSB community, but had blown out into the real world and was spreading rapidly through the mainstream. Voices across all forms of social media were decrying what appeared to be 2008 all over again. Wall Street being bailed out, while big institutions used their power to stomp on the little guy. But because of social media, the little guy now had a voice, and many, many champions, not just YouTube celebrities or esoteric billionaires, 
but even high-level members of government. Responding to a tweet by Motherboard, Vice's tech newsletter about the situation, Democratic House Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez had responded in a tweet of her own. This is unacceptable. We now need to know more about at Robinhood App's decision to block retail investors from purchasing stock while hedge funds are freely able to trade the stock as they see fit. As a member of the Financial Services Committee, I'd support a hearing if necessary. Her tweet had led to a rare agreement from Senator Ted Cruz. Fully agree. Over on CNBC, Elizabeth Warren, the former presidential candidate and Massachusetts senator, had trashed the SEC for not stepping in. We need an SEC that has clear rules about market manipulation and then has the backbone to get in and enforce those rules. And Representative Maxine Waters, chairman of the House Committee on Financial Services, had gone a step further, already calling for a hearing on the situation. A congressional hearing! What did that even mean? Keith had read about congressional hearings in the newspaper, had seen snippets of them on the news and on the web. Important people sitting at long desks surrounded by lawyers, taking turns answering questions hurled at them by the most powerful people in the country. How could they possibly build a hearing about what was happening right that moment? Who could they possibly call to testify? Robin Hood? Sure. Maybe Melvin? Who else? Some college kid calling himself Buttplug59 on a subreddit? Mark Cuban's 11-year-old son? A dude with a mullet and a bandana and a YouTube live stream? It was hard to imagine what such a hearing might accomplish if the goal would be to try to encapsulate the unfairness of what appeared to be happening and the fury such a moment had inspired, it might have been simpler just to spend a few moments following David Portnoy. The Barstool Sports Mogul's Twitter feed, he seemed to have continued his role of taking on the mantle of speaking for the WSB Reddit crowd in a barrage of new, unhinged video posts he'd made that afternoon. Dressed in a white t-shirt and raving at the camera like he'd just escaped from a mental hospital, He'd made it clear from the start, as a GME shareholder, where he stood. Everybody on Wall Street who had a hand in today's crime needs to go to prison. From there, it had only gotten worse. The way they have cheated, stolen, robbed everyday people who have invested with Robinhood and other E-Trade accounts by saying, hey, hedge funds are getting smoked, billionaires are getting smoked, so we are no longer going to let you trade certain stocks. We are shutting it off. You can't buy those stocks anymore. You can only sell them. We are going to crash those stocks so all our hedge fund billionaire friends can get out and not get killed. One of the most remarkable, illegal, shocking robberies in the history, in plain sight, just right in your face, put a gun in your mouth. Robin Hood, crooks, jail. Ken Griffin, Citadel, jail. Steve Cohen, the Mets owner, jail. They're robbing you. They are stealing from you. This is criminal. Portnoy's rant had actually gone meta later in the day when Steve Cohen had objected to being included in Portnoy's lineup of bad actors. On Twitter, Cohen had responded, a little before two in the afternoon. Hey Dave, what's your beef with me? I'm just trying to make a living just like you. Happy to take this offline. But Portnoy hadn't nearly been ready to back down. His response was fired off so fast it was riddled with typos. 
I don't do offline. That's where shady shit happens. You bailed out Melvin because he's your boy along with Citadel. I think you had a strong hand in today's criminal events to save hedge funds at the cost of ordinary people. Do you unequivocally deny that? Cohen's response had been filled with appropriate and carefully worded dismay. What are you talking about? I unequivocally deny that accusation. I had zero to do with what happened today. By the way, if I want to make an additional investment with somebody, that is my right if it's in the best interest of my investors. Chill out. By 3.13 in the afternoon, Portnoy had calmed down, but he wasn't letting Cohen or any of the rest off the hook. By the way, I don't believe at Steve Cohen too at all, but I have no way to prove anything. But in my experience, where there is smoke, there is usually fire. Keith understood. Portnoy was voicing what everyone on WSB was thinking. Portnoy was sitting on a much larger investment in GME than most of them, but his sentiments could have come from any one of the millions of board members who were watching the stock price tumble. I'll lose two million in this thing. I'm not selling. I'll eat the two million. I'll eat it like cake. Not selling because selling is what those fucking assholes want me to do. I'm not going to do it. I'd rather go bankrupt. It was the mantra of diamond hands. But Keith understood better than anyone. Hodling became much more difficult when the other side seemed to be capable of changing the rules with the touch of a button. Keith wouldn't have gone as far as Portnoy. He wasn't accusing Cohen or even Citadel of having anything to do with Robin Hood's actions. But that didn't mean Portnoy was alone in voicing the opinion that something sketchy was going on. The uproar and conspiracy theories had gotten so loud that Citadel itself responded to CNBC in true legalese. Citadel Securities has not instructed or otherwise caused any brokerage firm to stop, suspend, or limit trading or otherwise refuse to do business. Citadel Securities remains focused on continuously providing liquidity to our clients across all market conditions. But that wasn't going to reassure anyone watching the market chaos and wondering why the hell they couldn't buy GME while hedge funds like Melvin were still perfectly able to. Robinhood couldn't have made the decision lightly, despite how clinical they'd made it sound in their email and blog post. They'd done incalculable damage to their reputation. Already, thousands of people were slamming the company on the various app stores, Apple, Google, etc., giving it one-star review after one-star review. Many more were threatening to leave the app and take their trading money elsewhere. And the pushback wasn't contained to reviews, comments, and tweets by Robinhood's users. According to CNET, a lawsuit had already been filed in the Southern District of New York, and more suits were being threatened and planned. Many wanted Robinhood to pay a hefty price for limiting trading on GameStop, which begged the question even more. Were they really simply responding to a deposit requirement call from the National Clearing Facility? Or was something nefarious truly going on? For Keith, lying on the floor of his basement, these were heady thoughts. He'd fallen for a stalk. And now billionaires and internet moguls and U.S. congresswomen and senators were shouting at each other all over the internet. He wanted to stay above the fray, keep his thoughts pure and his focus on the deep, deep value. But the question Portnoy and others were asking was hard to ignore. Why did coincidences always seem to benefit the people in power? At the same time, Keith was determined to stay the course. He'd liked GameStop at $5 a share when nobody else was listening to him, and he still liked it at close to $200. 
Robin Hood couldn't restrict the buy side forever. Citadel and Melvin and Cohen had money and power, expensive suits and Wall Street offices. Keith had a poster of a cat on his wall and a bandana around his head. And despite that YOLO update he was about to release, with all those zeros lined up and the commas between, Keith had started with nothing. And when you start with nothing, you have nothing to lose. Chapter 24 January 29th, 2021 A day later, 700 miles south. The dull pounding at the door had been going on for a good five minutes before Jeremy lifted his head from his desk, where he'd set it down sometime between market close and the Marquis Curiso ending of Stein's Gate, his favorite entry in the science adventure visual interactive novel series, which he'd played so many times that even though the dialogue was entirely in Japanese, he was pretty sure he understood much, if not all, of what was happening. Even so, the vibrant manga and subtle twists in the narrative, which leaned heavily into themes like the relative nature of time, the dissociation that came with moments of trauma, and the dangerous effects even the smallest, seemingly inconsequential action can have on the future, were no match for the waves of stress-induced mental exhaustion that had finally overtaken him as he'd watched the last wild minutes of the wildest market day, of the wildest week in recent Wall Street memory, finally tick away. Head still inches from his desk, eyes shut, the image behind his eyelids was from his trading account, not the manga game, which was running in its own window on his laptop. GME had just closed at $325 a share, down from a daily high of $413.98, but still far above the dip that had occurred after Robin Hood had first closed buying of the stock the day before. Even though now most restrictions had been lifted, according to the business press, Robin Hood was in the process of raising a mind-numbing $3.4 billion in three days to cover any future deposit issues. The stock hadn't quite threatened the $500 ceiling again. Still, Jeremy's account showed a majestic six-figure profit. He should have been jumping up and down, doing calisthenics, dancing to Japanese pop, but instead he was barely able to finally open his eyes and stare angrily toward the door of his apartment as the pounding grew and grew. Go away, he shouted. But that only seemed to make the person on the other side more determined, which was as much evidence as Jeremy needed for him to guess who was interrupting his self-imposed seclusion. Which also meant he had little choice. The door, or Jeremy, Casper wasn't going away until one of them broke down and let him in. Jeremy sighed, then rose from his desk and navigated past the piles of laundry, delivery cartons and bags from a half dozen ordered-in meals, and a metropolis of discarded plastic Gatorade, water, and soda bottles that covered every open surface between him and his front entrance. He'd only gotten the door halfway open before Casper was inside, pushing past him, two heavy grocery bags in his arms. He set the bags on the couch, between two empty pizza boxes, then looked around at the mess. I really like what you've done with the place. Can't wait to see you on the cover of Shut In Weekly. Jeremy closed the door, wishing his brother were still on the other side. What do you want, Casper? Wellness check, buddy. Dad sent you? Casper shook his head. He came around the couch, pushed one of the grocery bags aside just enough to give him room to sit down. Nope, Carl texted me. 
said you missed last night's study session. And Michael says you weren't in class today or yesterday. Jeremy rubbed his eyes. He'd been ignoring his friend's texts and emails, so he should have figured one of them might reach out to Casper. For all Jeremy knew, they'd been down to his apartment to see what was going on with him. He'd had the music up loud for much of the day. And I noticed the car hasn't been moved since last week, which means you also missed your COVID test. Jeremy cursed. He'd completely forgotten about that. He and Casper shared the one car, which was parked in a garage two blocks from Jeremy's apartment. The spots weren't assigned, and the garage was usually busy, which meant the car never ended up parked in the same place. Of course, Casper would notice. The kid had a mind like a filing cabinet. The way he was looking around Jeremy's apartment, there was no question he was calculating how long Jeremy had kept himself locked inside, how many meals he'd had delivered, how many Zoom classes he'd probably missed. Knowing Casper, he'd already seen the stack of school textbooks on Jeremy's desk, still in the same position from the week before, unopened, because Jeremy had barely done any schoolwork at all in days. Again and again, Jeremy had promised himself he'd stop watching GameStop, stop reading the WSB board that he was going to hold for a year anyway, so the day-by-day fluctuations were just noise he could tune out. But whenever he'd tried to concentrate on something else, like a problem set, he'd find his eyes wandering back to his phone or his laptop, and then he'd be right back onto the board, or in his Robin Hood account. He'd been staring at the screen when Elon Musk had tweeted GameStonk and had watched the after-hours price spiral toward the moon. He'd still been online 13 hours later, when in pre-market the stock had eclipsed $500 a share, and his account value had reached $175,000. And he'd been on the Wall Street Bets board, reading comments when the Robinhood blog post had gone up, and all hell had broken loose. A day later, the stock had grudgingly recovered, but there was no doubt that the short squeeze had been interrupted. Whether it could regain its footing, whether there were enough shorts left and enough diamond hands opposing them to push the stock back into the stratosphere, was unknown. But there was no doubt. Jeremy could no longer look away. Even his beloved anime couldn't compete with the drama going on with GME. At least I know it's not a girl, Casper said gingerly moving a piece of uneaten pizza from beneath him on the couch. So what the hell is going on, man? Jeremy glanced past his brother toward the laptop. Casper followed his eyes. Though the anime was still the brightest thing on the screen, his open trading account and the WSB board were just as recognizable, even from across the room. Christ, man, you haven't sold yet? I told you to fucking sell. Yes, you told me to sell at $20 and then you told me to sell at 30, and then at 100, like dad. So what's it at now? Jeremy crossed back toward the desk. Closed around 325. There was a pause. Holy shit, man. Casper rose from the couch and followed Jeremy, who was already dropping back into his desk chair. I mean, Casper said. Holy shit. You're rich. Or... You would be if you sold. I'm not selling. Jeremy hadn't meant it to come out so harsh. His heart was pounding faster than it needed to, and he could feel his hands bawling into fists. He wasn't sure what was making him so angry. He knew his brother was just worried about him. 
but Casper didn't understand what was going on. He wasn't on the WSB board, day and night, reading the rallying cries, being bolstered by the camaraderie. He didn't understand that Jeremy was part of a community, more than that, part of a tribe. Jeremy had seen some posts by people who had sold, people who'd taken profits because they were afraid or felt betrayed by what Robin Hood had done, or believed that Wall Street was going to find a way to win, one way or another. And Jeremy had truly felt betrayed, just as he had when his dad had sold. He knew it wasn't fair. He didn't know these people, didn't know what sorts of hardships they were facing and what it meant to them to make a few hundred dollars or a few thousand, or tens of thousands on a stock. But he had truly believed that those who were still holding were in this together. If we stick together as a community, keep holding, he said, his voice calmer now. The stock will go up. Yeah, maybe, and maybe it won't. Maybe it will drop right back to $40, or $20, or $10, but what I do know is that if you keep this up, you're going to lose the few friends you say you have. And you're definitely going to flunk out of school. Brothers are awesome, Jeremy responded. Casper smiled. Then he shook his head. You can pretend that you're doing this because you're a part of some movement, some community that matters to you, and maybe that's true. But I know you, Jeremy, which means I know how this is going to play out. What do you mean? Bottle caps, man. Jeremy glanced back at his brother, who was leaning over his shoulder now, reading the WSB board. Bottle caps. It was a memory from back on the boat, when they were two kids who really only had each other, because there were never any other kids around. They'd invented numerous games and competitions to keep themselves occupied. Jeremy wasn't sure which one of them had first started collecting bottle caps, but almost immediately, it had become a sport seeing whose collection could grow the biggest with the best, most exotic caps. Every island they'd stopped on, the two of them would rush ahead of their parents, scouring the streets, gutters, sidewalks for those little circular flecks of metal. Within a few weeks, both of their collections had grown impressive, filling their mother's empty shoe boxes, their dad's unused tackle boxes, even the plastic buckets they'd used to clean the canvas of the deck. And they'd been about even until they'd reached the Bahamas, making port in Nassau for a month-long stay. That first day on the island, Jeremy and his brother had headed out looking for more bottle caps. An hour in, walking in the hot sun, they hadn't found any for their collection. They'd been standing in the street, two kids, seven and nine years old, when Casper had noticed they were in front of a bar. The place had looked seedy, with a neon beer sign in the window. Jeremy had told him they should head back to the boat, but Casper had only given him a look and then run inside. Jeremy had wanted to follow, but had stayed rooted where he was. Maybe he'd been scared. Maybe he'd figured it was a waste of time. Casper was seven and didn't have any money. But to Jeremy's surprise, just a moment later, Casper had come running back out, a giant grin on his face. In his hands, a bottle of red stripe. Not only did he have the winning bottle cap, but the entire beer. Look, Casper said, I was wrong and you were right. You got your short squeeze. You made over a hundred thousand dollars. And now you're going to lose every penny of it. Because, and I mean this in the nicest way, you guys on this board are a bunch of losers. 
and the guys you're up against are sharks. They win. That's what they do. You're up right now, but you'll hold all the way back down. Jeremy stared at his brother. You think Melvin Capital gives a crap about community or some movement? You think Citadel cares about whose turn it is? They'd cut all your throats, dance in your blood, then walk away without a second thought. They're winners. You're a loser. And that's why I know you're going to pull a loss out of this win. Casper gave a last look at the WSB board, then turned away and headed for the door. Jeremy watched him go, thinking about Melvin, Citadel, and bottle caps. It wasn't until his brother was gone and Jeremy was alone in the room that he realized Casper was right. 48 hours later, Jeremy was back in the exact same spot, but now he was standing, his entire body trembling as he hovered over the screen of his phone, lying right next to his computer's keyboard. His hair was wild and the music was playing well past 11. Not Kanako Ito this time, but Zwei, more techno rock than pop. Megu's dramatic bass guitar riffs melding with Ayumu's vocals, waves of sound crashing against the walls of Jeremy's apartment as he counted the minutes to mark it open after the longest, most difficult weekend of his entire life. Once his decision to sell had been made, he'd been determined to stay off the computer. Beginning right after his brother had left, and all the way past midnight Friday, he'd lain on his couch, eyes closed, willing himself to think of anything other than GameStop. Saturday, he'd taken half a dozen walks around the grounds of his apartment complex. He'd sat by the lake watching birds chase each other through the stone gray air. He'd even pulled up a plastic recliner by the pool and had sat there, bundled up against the midwinter chill, hoping nobody he knew would happen by, but knowing even if they had, they'd probably have avoided him anyway. And not just because of COVID. Jeremy knew full well that he looked like a madman, because he really did feel like he was on his way to going mad. By Saturday afternoon, despite his best intentions, he'd ended up back on his computer. As he'd expected, most of what he saw on the WSB boards were diamond hands pumping, propping each other up to remain strong for the coming week. A couple of the posts were truly inspiring. Perhaps the most vivid of them all was a post put up by user Some Guy in Deutschland containing a high-res video of a billboard someone had bought in Times Square, which simply read GME go brrr over a Robin Hood-like stock graph going vertical. The billboard, playing off the popular meme of the sound made when a machine prints money, quickly became the top post on the board and the number two post on Reddit overall. Another post that connected to Jeremy on a more personal level was an image put up by a user calling himself or herself Parliament, containing characters from Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. In one frame, one of the turtles is pictured as a young child being led by the hand by Master Splinter, the turtle's rodent mentor. In the second frame, the same turtle is now a muscled adult, guiding along Splinter, who is now aged and humbled, superimposed over the turtle in both frames, the word millennials, and over Splinter, GameStop. Jeremy had understood the meme immediately. It played on his sense of nostalgia, how GameStop was once the place he'd begged his parents to take him to, a place he could stay for hours, checking out the descriptions on the backs of game boxes, playing demos, reading gaming magazines. 
Now it was Jeremy's turn to give back to the company, show his appreciation and love. But the meme that really spoke to Jeremy, above all the others, was a minute-long scene from the animated movie The Iron Giant, posted by a user named Jeepers underscore Sheepers, which had been repurposed via subtitles. In the scene, the giant robot flies into space to protect the Earth, and a little kid, from a missile. Through the subtitles, the story reads a little differently. The kid is now all the normal people who own GameStop, the weak hands who are ready to sell. The Iron Giant represents the WSB Diamond Hands, and the missile, Melvin Capital. The giant goes up to protect the kid, blowing up the missile, and the ensuing explosion reads, Bankruptcy. Watching the video over and over, Jeremy felt just like that kid, and the WSB community was protecting him as he waited through that torturous weekend for the market to reopen. Jeremy wanted to be part of history, and he wanted to keep holding like the rest. He truly felt that he would disappoint these people he didn't know and would never meet if he sold. But his brother had been right. Jeremy wasn't a shark. He didn't even know how to win properly. Given time, he'd eventually turn this win into a loss. And besides, he rationalized to himself, many of those diamond hands on WSB had gotten in much later than him, at $100, $200, even $300 and higher. They'd had different anchoring positions. His baseline was less than $17. Shoot for the moon? He'd already hit the moon. And now he was going to prove his brother wrong. He was going to win. He let the techno rock fill him up from the inside as he counted the last few minutes until 9.30 a.m. And then he brought his finger down on the sell button on his Robinhood account. A total of 350 shares, which he'd bought at an average of a little over $17, sold at $314.22 a share for $109,977. Jeremy stepped back from his desk, and then his entire body started to move, his pipe cleaner arms and legs jerking and jagging to the Japanese music, like the limbs of a marionette whose strings had gotten tangled in a ceiling fan. He'd done it. He was out. He was dancing. And he would continue to dance, until eventually he would stop long enough to call his brother, to tell him the news, and then even longer, to call his father to apologize. And then he would dance some more. Chapter 25 Three days later. There was a brief moment of weightlessness as the narrow-bodied Delta Airbus A220 bounced and bounded through the last few tendrils of the storm that had gathered quite suddenly over Phoenix's Sky Harbor Airport. And then Kim felt herself pressed back into her seat as the engines kicked in, the silvery capsule around her punching through the thick canopy of clouds and into a spectacularly clear blue morning sky. Kim was breathing hard behind her mask as she watched the clouds recede through the cold glass oval window to her left, and she could feel her heart racing in her chest. Flying had never bothered her before. She'd made this trip a dozen times in the past five years, and it was about as seamless a hop as modern air travel allowed. She'd normally leave Phoenix shortly after breakfast, 
be back at work at the hospital by lunch. But like everything else this year of COVID, what used to be routine now seemed alien. The masks, the temperature checks at the gate, the fact that there was nobody sitting in the middle seat next to her. Well, at least that was an improvement, though she felt certain it would be the most temporary of the new standards. Already she'd read that some airlines had begun hedging on such valuable, if medieval, onboard real estate. Kim was only surprised it had taken them so long. Not even a deadly virus could stand up very long against receding airline profits. The machine, as always, needed to be fed. Now that they were above the clouds, Kim turned away from the window. Her tray table was still up and safely stored, her laptop on the floor beneath the seat in front of her, but her phone was in her pocket. She resisted the urge to pull it out, because the seatbelt sign was still on and the plane was still rising, which meant the wireless probably wasn't working yet. And besides, the market had been open only a few minutes. Still, it was painful to be stuck in one of the few remaining disconnected spots on the planet, especially considering all that had happened in the past few days. Turbulence didn't even begin to describe what she had been through since Robin Hood had turned off the spigot and dampened the short squeeze. For all she knew, by the time her flight home from Phoenix reached cruising altitude, her moonshot rocket ship was going to be more like Skylab, ending up a little more than a crater in the desert, 30,000 feet below where she was sitting. By coincidence, she'd been on a similar plane going in the opposite direction on January 28th, when Robin Hood had put the brakes on GameStop, which had been hovering close to its $500 a share high. That morning, she'd almost canceled her trip, even though she'd been looking forward to the week in Phoenix visiting her best friend Angie for nearly a year. The days leading up to Robin Hood's devastating move had been like an incredible dream. She'd watched her account rise from its initial $5,000 value to $50,000, all from those 100 shares of GameStop that she'd bought for around $1,600. When the stock had touched $500 in pre-market that Thursday, seven days ago, it had seemed like nothing was going to stop the rise. The short squeeze, she'd explained to Chinway, was really, finally, in full swing and a price of $1,000 no longer seemed like a fantasy. Paying for Brian's braces had morphed, in her mind, into the possibility that she might pay off her house, maybe even buy a new car. Hell, anything seemed possible. And at work, most of her colleagues had celebrated with her. A few of the girls had even followed her into the trade, buying at $200 and $300 a share. One of the night shift nurses, who had learned of Kim's good fortune, had even grabbed two shares that Wednesday night at over $340. For people who made the kind of money they did, it was a risky move. But then again, how often did an RN at a psychiatric hospital get a chance to make life-changing profits? Among her friends, only Chinway had remained skeptical, or as he put it, realistic. Goliath just getting started, he'd say whenever he saw her in the break room. Each time, Kim had told him to lighten up, but eventually he had broken her down just enough that late Wednesday night. She had put in a sell order for just five of her shares. And even after Robin Hood's terrible maneuver, she'd managed to pull out a little more than her initial investment, leaving the remaining 95 shares to ride through the roller coaster that came next. When she'd headed to the airport on the 28th, she'd honestly believed that by the time she'd landed in Phoenix, she'd be a wealthy woman. 
The plane banked to the left and then finally straightened out. The seatbelt light went off with a ding, followed by the soft tones of the pilot, reassuring them that they were on their way to a smooth, short flight back to California. It was another oddity how quiet the cabin seemed. Perhaps it had to do with the masks, or perhaps the shared anxiety. Everyone had always been nervous on planes, but now people seemed more afraid of the invisible germs flying along in the canned air next to them than the possibility of a plummet followed by a crash. Kim wasn't afraid of either. She'd been vaccinated against the first, and she'd already experienced the second. Because despite what she'd thought when she'd first read the Robin Hood blog and seen the reaction on the WSB board, the GME ride had never been the same again. When Kim had first learned that Robin Hood had restricted buying, the consequences hadn't quite hit her. Sure, the downward pressure took some of the steam off the short squeeze, but she'd always assumed it would be temporary, and she knew from reading Wall Street bets that the community was determined to see it through. Anyone who talked about selling was roundly ridiculed, and the peer pressure, along with the recognition that this was now a national story, driving millions and millions of new members to Wall Street bets and to GameStop, should have kept the rocket heading skyward. And for a time, Kim had remained cautiously optimistic. Friday the 29th, the stock had remained strong, closing at $325. Then the following Monday, February 1st, it had still opened strong, a hair above $316. And that's when things had started to deflate. By the end of the day, the stock had fallen to $225, and over the next two days, freefall. That morning, when she'd left Phoenix, it had been sitting at a little above $91, still well higher than when she'd bought at $16, but less than 20% of the high near $500 that the stock had been trading at before Robin Hood had pulled the plug. Somewhere between $300 and $100 was when Kim had really started to get angry. Chinway had always liked to say that there wasn't a conspiracy theory that Kim didn't love. But at first, her mind hadn't gone that way at all. She just couldn't believe that anyone could act as brazenly as Robin Hood had, right in the open, for everyone to see, if something nefarious had been behind their move. But the more her anger multiplied, and the more she read Wall Street bets, the more she'd become convinced, when you added Robin Hood's restrictions to the actions of discord, and the temporary blockage of the WSB board, it really did feel like a coordinated attack. Whatever it was, it had certainly ruined Kim's vacation week. From the moment Angie had picked her up at the airport, Kim had been ranting about GameStop, and she hadn't let up for seven full days. The fact that she'd come to Phoenix for an inaugural party of the charitable group she and Angie had worked so hard to join, the Daughters of the American Revolution, had only made matters worse. When GME was riding high, Kim had fantasized about the checks she would be able to write toward patriotic causes like supporting female veterans or educational sessions promoting the U.S. Constitution. But in light of what she'd just witnessed, which more and more she was beginning to believe was yet another blow against fairness and the level playing field, things she most equated with American patriotism, it all felt somehow sullied. By the end of the week, even Angie, her biggest supporter, who had been so proud that Kim was part of what was going on with GameStop, had been telling her she needed to take what profits she'd made and get out. And yet somehow, Kim just couldn't sell. Even as the stock continued to fall that very morning, 
she still couldn't force herself to dump her GME. After Angie had dropped her off at the airport and she'd worked her way through the security theater, and the additional COVID double encore, she'd paused at the gate to call Chinway, her work husband, because like a real husband and wife, they always liked to call each other before and after flights. To her surprise, he hadn't immediately jumped on her with comments about Goliath or David. But the quiet on the other end of the line made her feel even more foolish somehow. Of all people, she thought, standing there in the Phoenix airport, her DAR pin still stuck proudly to a corner of her lapel. She should have known better. I'm an idiot, she'd said into the phone. It's okay, Chinway, you can say it. He'd paused on the other end. I don't think you're an idiot. I think you wanted to believe. And I'm proud of you for that. His words had hit her harder than she'd expected. They were talking about GameStop, a stupid video game company. So, should I sell? She'd asked after a moment. And then he'd laughed. I can't tell you what to do. Nobody tells you what to do. Now, sitting in the cabin of that plane, 30,000 feet above the desert, waiting for her wireless to connect. She thought about his words. Chinway was right. Nobody had ever been able to tell her what to do. That was probably why her life was so messy. People, institutions, society, things just kept letting her down. But even so, she kept believing. And she kept charging forward. Her world might always be unfair, and her life might always be messy but a big part of her liked Messy. And the truth was, when that wireless finally powered up, Kim wasn't sure if she was going to sell, hold, or hell, maybe even buy more. Chapter 26, February 15th, 2021. One week later, 2 a.m., the snow was coming down in sheets as Sarah stood at the end of the gravel driveway in front of her rented condo, pulling her husband's ski jacket tight over her shoulders and as far around her growing belly as she could manage. None of her own jackets fit anymore, and though she'd been browsing Amazon for weeks for pregnancy clothes, she had rarely been willing to pull the trigger. Spending money on something so temporary seemed somehow wrong, but when she thought about it, wasn't everything about this moment they were living, quite apart from the pregnancy, temporary? And where exactly did the definition of temporary start to fray? Nine months? A year? She shivered, jamming her hands deep into her husband's coat pockets. The fingers of her right hand touched her phone, but she didn't draw it out into the cold. For the first time in days, she no longer felt the pull to look at its screen not only because it was so late on a Saturday night, or so early on Sunday morning, which meant the market was closed, and even the Wall Street Bets board, with its many millions of new users, was quiet, but because Sarah knew that for her, much of the spell had been broken. Unlike many on the WSB board, she'd never truly given in to the delusions, the fantasies, or the daydreams. She'd always approached her trade, as small as it was in the grand scheme of things, as something grounded, but she had allowed herself to hope, and it had been hard not to get caught up in the thrill of the moment, watching the stock fire upward toward the moon. But when reality had come crashing down, and the powers that be had once again been, 
Sarah had quickly fallen back to the emotions that had become so familiar over the past year. Disappointment. Acceptance. Perseverance. She hadn't sold her shares, and she doubted now that she ever would. She looked down at her feet, toward the gravel that she knew was there but could no longer see. It had been snowing for only a few hours, but already the flakes had gotten heavy and thick, accumulating in clumps and drifts that looked like dunes in the soft light from the front steps of her home, which she'd left on when she'd come outside. It hadn't been difficult, crawling out of bed at that hour without waking her husband. It was something she'd gotten good at over the course of her pregnancy. She supposed the insomnia was just another evolutionary gift. Her body preparing her for the sleeplessness she'd endure after the baby was born. But tonight, she didn't really mind. The insomnia, the sleeplessness involved with bringing something new into the world, it was just another example of reality encroaching into what could sometimes seem like a fantasy. Like a snowstorm hitting on Valentine's Day, ruining the plans they'd set to take a drive to Emmons Lake and picnic in their car. But the evening hadn't been a bust at all. Instead of a picnic, her husband had cooked dinner, and they'd even opened a bottle of wine, which he'd had to tend to himself because of her condition. It had been romantic and lovely and fun. Even now, standing out in the driveway, watching the snow fall, she could think of it and smile. Her fingers still rested against her phone, but even that didn't affect the feeling of warmth spreading through her. Despite the snow touching down in her hair, on her cheeks, against the bare skin at the back of her neck. Her ten shares of GameStop were sitting at one-sixth the price she'd bought them at, but they were still hers. And if the wild, improbable, impossible ride was really over, if the moment really had been temporary, like the snowstorm swirling around her, or the current state of her body, or the moment they were all living through, would that really change anything? She shook her head then started back up her snowbound driveway, toward her front steps. Even for a realist like her, it was hard to think clearly in the middle of a snowy night. She knew things would look different once the storm had passed, and she was finally able to see things in the bright light of day. Chapter 27, February 18th, 2021. Noon. Gabe Plotkin stared into the icy glow of his computer's digital eye, waiting for the smoke to clear, imagining the faces queuing up, one after another, in offices, homes, second homes, in cities and states spread from one coast to the other. A vast, interconnected spiderweb of powerful people, brought together for a live stream that had been described in the press as mostly investigative, but from Gabe's perspective, it must have seemed more a Shakespearean Greek chorus formed for the direct purpose of sitting in judgment. Ironic that the worst moment of Gabe's career, and most likely one of the most painful episodes in his life, would culminate in a live stream to be aired on the web, captured in ink for all time, available to anyone with an internet connection. Over his career, Gabe had taken great pains to avoid any real public imprint, unlike some of his peers. Even his former boss, he had never chased notoriety, or willingly made public waves. Until a few months ago, hardly anyone outside his industry even knew his name. And now here he was, making his debut in front of a world stage, 
expected to explain one of the biggest and quickest losses in financial history to a hungry and homebound audience. Try as he might to assuage himself with his sports-based mantra that getting back after a fall proved character and separated the great from the merely lucky. It was hard to see past the depths of that plummet. Now dragged out in the open by a congressional committee, he had to try to explain how it had all happened when he himself was still attempting to digest what had gone so horribly wrong. His body stiffened as he watched that screen. It wasn't really smoke, of course, more of a pearl-gray blur of pixels. And when it finally did resolve, in the center sat Maxine Waters, the chair of the House Committee on Financial Services. She was in front of a stark white background, empty save for an American flag and the framed picture hidden by her own countenance. The congresswoman looked as serious as ever as she started with the title of the day's hearing. Game stopped? Who wins and loses when short sellers, social media, and retail investors collide? From there, she dove headfirst into it. Recent market volatility has put a national spotlight on institutional practices by Wall Street firms and prompted discussion about the evolving role of technology and social media in our markets. These events have illuminated potential conflicts of interest and the predatory ways that certain funds operate. And they have demonstrated the enormous power of social media in our markets. They have also raised issues involving gamification of trading, potential harm to retail investors. Many of her words landed like blows on Gabe's shoulders, even though some might think them unfair. There had been nothing predatory about Melvin's short position in GameStop. It had been a simple, uncontroversial trade. In a million years, he could not have guessed that shorting a brick-and-mortar, mall-based dinosaur with massive debt and seemingly no real plan for the future would be something he would have to defend. Many Americans feel that the system is stacked against them, Waters continued. And no matter what, Wall Street always wins. In this instance, many retail investors appeared motivated by a desire to beat Wall Street at its own game. And given the losses that many retail investors have sustained as a result of volatility in the system, there are many whose belief that the system is rigged against them has been reinforced. If Gabe hadn't been trapped in his chair, nothing visible to the camera save a drawn window shade behind him, along with a shadowy wall and a Hewlett-Packard printer, as if he weren't broadcasting from a seldom-used supply closet at Melvin Capital, moments away from being called to testify, he might have turned off the live stream right there. Losses sustained by retail investors as a result of volatility. If the Wall Street bets mob had suffered losses, whose fault was that? Who had caused the volatility in the system? And if the system really was rigged against the Reddit crowd, then why had Gabe just lost a reported $6 billion in a matter of days? But Gabe had no choice except to listen, in silence, until it was his turn to unmute his camera. As he was finally called upon to speak, there was a brief pause, his eyes widening. Perhaps nausea flowed through him as he faced this odd moment of reckoning in front of, arguably, the most powerful committee in Congress, not to mention the millions of people watching in the only instance in history when viewing a congressional live stream was a pretty reasonable way for anyone to spend a Thursday afternoon. I want to make clear at the outset, he started, after thanking the committee for dragging him out into the open like this. Then he went right to the heart of the matter. Robin Hood's restriction of the buy side of GME 
that Melvin Capital played absolutely no role in those trading platforms' decisions. In fact, Melvin closed out all of its positions in GameStop days before those platforms put those limitations in place. Like you, we learned about those limits from news reports. There was no need to connect the obvious dots, that if Melvin had been out of its short position, they'd had nothing to gain from Robinhood limiting the buying of GameStop. Had Gabe known Robinhood and the other brokerages would make such a maneuver, wouldn't he have waited another day and saved himself billions of dollars? Who really was the victim here anyway? Contrary to many reports, he continued, Melvin Capital was not bailed out. Citadel proactively reached out to become a new investor. Was it Gabe's fault that Citadel suddenly saw a hedge fund that had lost half of its value as a good investment? It was an opportunity for Citadel to buy low, Gabe rationalized, adding, to be sure, Melvin was managing through a difficult time. We were not seeking a cash infusion. It was like defending himself with a shotgun, attempting to blast holes in the conspiratorial narrative that had been building on social media for the past two weeks. And while he was defending Melvin, he found himself also needing to use that shotgun to defend one of Wall Street's most controversial tools. When our research suggests a company will not live up to expectations and its stock price is overvalued, we might short a stock. When the market goes down, we have a duty to protect our investors' capital. With GME, the ground beneath that trade couldn't have been firmer. Specific to GameStop, we had a research-supportive view well before the recent events. In fact, we had been short GameStop since Melvin's inception six years earlier because we believed and still believe that its business model... But Gabe had to know that for much of his audience, the rationale fell on deaf ears. They weren't looking for financial education. They were looking for someone to blame. Although only a handful of the congressional inquisitors took direct aim at him during the proceedings, there were other, juicier targets for them to lay into. Representative Blaine Lutkemeyer from Montana put into words what many were thinking. I understand that GameStop stock was short-sold 140%. Mr. Plotkin, you made the comment in your testimony that you were not trying to manipulate stock. Yet if you're short-selling a stock 140%, on the outside looking in, it looks like that's exactly what you're doing. Explain to me why that's not manipulating a stock. But it wasn't Gabe the congressman was taking aim at. It was the system. For us, Gabe answered, I can't speak to other people that were short. Anytime we look to short a stock, we locate a borrow. Our systems actually force us to find a borrow. We always short stocks within the context of all the rules. From the short perspective, the manipulation was all on the other side of the trade. Gabe had shorted the stock because he believed it was going down, and others had piled into the trade because they agreed, to such an extent that shares were borrowed more than once. And clearly, the stock should have continued to go down. But it hadn't. Ultimately, the reason that it had instead gone up was murky. Could a bunch of unsophisticated, loosely coordinated retail traders actually launch such a short squeeze? Or was something deeper happening, which was yet to be uncovered? If the committee was really looking to understand where Gabe's trade had gone wrong, they should have been focusing on the other side. The short trade was the one that had made sense. It wasn't until three hours and 40 minutes into the session that Representative Al Lawson from Florida finally asked Gabe about that other side. 
how, as the narrative went, an amateur investor could have caused the market to turn upside down and cost Gabe billions of dollars. How someone like Gabe, who had been a winner all his life, who knew that winning wasn't a sometime thing, but an all-time thing, could have been bested by a guy in his basement. It was the question, no doubt, that Gabe had been asking himself every day since he'd closed his short position. Now, for the first time, he could try and answer it. Because for the first time in this entire ordeal, even though it was through that spiderweb of video screens, he was face to face with the mullet-headed, bandana-wearing amateur who had nearly destroyed his fund. I think they saw an opportunity to drive the price of a stock higher, Gabe said. And as much as he tried to swallow it down, the pain was written in the deep lines above his eyes. And today, with social media and other means, there's the ability to collectively do so. That was a risk factor, you know. Up until recently, we'd never seen. They exploited an opportunity around short interest. But even as he spoke, the sparks began to light inside him. He was on the ground, wounded and bleeding but he hadn't given up. From one sentence to the next, he seemed to push himself back up, first to his knees, then slowly, stronger, toward his feet. Us and Melvin, we'll adapt, and I think the whole industry will have to adapt. When Congressman Lawson continued, asking what the industry needed to do to keep this from happening again, Gabe was already stepping forward, shaking the mud from his shoes. A fighter getting up from the mat, strapping on the gloves again, Michael Jordan, walking onto the court the day after a rare loss, ready to start raining threes. I think to some degree markets are self-correcting. Moving forward, I don't think you're going to see stocks with the kind of short interest levels that we've seen prior to this year. I don't think investors like myself will want to be susceptible to these types of dynamics. I think there will be a lot closer monitoring of message boards. We have a data science team that will be looking at that. You know, whatever regulation that you guys come up with, certainly will abide by. Even over a live stream, the transformation was visible. In less than a minute, Gabe had gone from a bewildered victim to the professional athlete he'd always been. It was time to accept the loss and move on, because there were plenty more wins in his future. As he had said, the market was self-correcting. The system would adapt. The stranger in the basement had bested Gabe, but now that he was revealed, now that the threat he represented was as sharp as the pixels on the screen in front of Gabe, he would not be able to beat Gabe again. Almost eight years ago, Bajubat and I founded Robinhood. We believed then, as we do now, that the financial system should be built to work for everyone, not just a select few. Vlad Tenev, seated in perfect posture in front of a low shelf supporting a couple of books that might have been biblical, and a trio of vases or vessels or urns that might have been ancient, was coasting on a cushion of air as he spoke truth into the ether of the internet. We dreamed of making investing more accessible, especially for people without a lot of money. Vlad's words throbbed with the passion of a believer, and it didn't matter whether his sermon was reaching just the fifty-odd lawmakers who were gathered at the mount, or the millions upon millions who were watching in their homes. The stock market is a powerful wealth creator, he continued. But almost half of U.S. households. And when the first interruption came, from the chair herself, it seemed such a surprise that Vlad's stunned look was obvious to anyone who was watching. Mr. Tenev, I would like you to use your limited time to talk directly to what happened January 28th and your involvement in it. And at first, 
maybe slightly more hesitant than he'd begun, Vlad tried to power through, quickly erecting the pillars of the Robin Hood myth and message. We created Robin Hood to economically empower all Americans by opening financial markets to them. I was born in Bulgaria, a country with a financial system that was on the verge of collapse. At the age of five, I emigrated with my family to America in search of a better life. And again, he was gaining steam as he went from coasting on that cushion of air to dancing across a sparkling glade of water. He spoke, of course, of the democratization of finance, of the educational resources of his platform, of the wondrous fractional investments, the dividend reinvestments, and the recurring investments that his customers enjoyed. Their steady diet of blue-chip stocks and ETFs that had, in part, given that customer base a total value that exceeds the net amount of money they have deposited by over $35 billion. Our business model is working for everyday Americans, he added. But as high as he had built those pillars, as hard as he tried to glide up to the elevated perch the mythology supported, within moments, he found the interruption had only been the first salvo. By ten minutes into the hearing, the arrows were coming so fast and furious, they might as well have been a violent rain. From Representative David Scott of Georgia. Don't you see and agree that something very wrong happened here and that you're at the center of it? Representative Juan Vargas from California. Robin Hood is an English folk hero, 13th, 14th century, and he was supposed to steal from the rich and give to the poor. Here you almost have the opposite. You have the situation where you have the steal from the small retail investor and giving it to the large institutional investor. And the many versions of a single question, parsed by congressmen and women from every angle. Is payment for order flow even legal? Never mind that the people asking the questions were the very same lawmakers who crafted the rules and laws, who had helped build the system that had landed Vlad in their crosshairs. It was obvious he was not there as simply another witness to what had happened, like they'd mostly treated Gabe Plotkin, but to be a target. Accusations masquerading as questions hurled at him in a mix of political grandstanding and real anger all of them mined from the conspiracy-laden maelstrom that had been growing on social media since January 28th. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, the congresswoman from New York, summed up the attacks eight minutes after the five-hour mark. Mr. Tenev, Robin Hood has engaged in a track record of outages, design failures, and most recently what appears to be a failure to properly account for your own internal risk. You've previously tried to blame clearinghouses for your need and scramble to raise $3.4 billion in a matter of days. Given Robinhood's track record, isn't it possible that the issue is not clearinghouses, but the fact that you simply didn't manage your own book? And from there, she pivoted to payment for order flow, highlighting that PFOF carried with it considerable chances for conflicts of interest, and furthermore, that the profits generated by the practice though allowing Robinhood to provide commission-free trading, essentially meant that trading on Robinhood isn't actually free to begin with. At first, though immediately on the defensive, Vlad answered the barrage of accusatory questions with as much poise and grace as he could muster. He spoke of how unusual, extraordinary, the events leading up to January 28th were. How the deposit requirement that had woken him from his sleep that morning had been ten times the requirement from just three days earlier, how seriously they had taken the act of restricting buying of GME, but how infinitely worse it would have been had they prevented customers from selling, making them unable to access money when perhaps they needed it. But by the end of the session, his posture was suffering. 
his jacket and tie disheveled, and his cheeks flushed. When he finally responded to Ocasio-Cortez's unyielding attack, certainly, Congresswoman Robin Hood is a for-profit business, he was clearly flustered. And in another part of the hearing, when things turned inevitably to whether Robin Hood had gamified the stock market with its amateur-friendly app, there was little he could do but throw up his hands. Look, I'm sorry for what happened, he apologized, no longer coasting on air, but gasping for it. I apologize. I'm not going to say that Robin Hood did everything perfect. But this, in his words, was a one in 3.5 million occurrence event. One that had never been seen before in capital markets. He didn't believe it had anything to do with gamification, a word which the congressmen and women tossed at him like it was evil incarnate. Ironic, considering the entire episode revolved around a mob of retail traders trying to prop up the stock of a company that existed only because of the American public's love of games. Although Vlad wouldn't have said it himself, if anyone had gamified Wall Street, it was the American people. The very populace that had put these congressmen and women into office, they were the ones buying GameStop for the expressed reason to take down Wall Street. In the end, it all boiled down to a single question. Could this happen again? Vlad was certain that with their new financial cushion, even if it did, his company could handle it. But even so, he might have felt that he wasn't the right person to ask. Because as slick and as cool and as addictive as his app might be, he was only the middleman. Sure, when you were the middleman, when things went wrong, you were inevitably in the middle. But if Wall Street had been gamified, if the stock market had turned into some vast video game, Robin Hood was just the console. The hedge funds, Melvin, Gabe Plotkin, and the retail traders, the bandana in the basement, were the players. If a video game was broken, if its software seemed suddenly filled with bugs, you didn't blame the console, and you didn't blame the players. You either blamed the people who built the game, or you blamed whoever was powerful enough to change its code, once it had already been set in motion. I want to be perfectly clear. We had no role in Robinhood's decision to limit trading in GameStop. I first learned of Robinhood's trading restrictions only after they were publicly announced. Ken Griffin spoke calmly, carefully and precisely into the camera, rarely blinking, as if even the act of blinking was something he did by choice and not out of necessity. He appeared confident, if not comfortable, facing the powerful House Committee and his tone was that of a man who had many important things to do that day. He was there because it was unavoidable, and he would answer any question the congressman and women asked, but he didn't intend to repeat himself. During the period of frenzied retail equities trading, Citadel Securities was able to provide continuous liquidity every minute of every trading day. When others were unable or unwilling to handle the heavy volumes, Citadel Securities was there. On Wednesday, January 27th, we executed 7.4 billion shares on behalf of retail investors. To put this into perspective, on that day, Citadel Securities executed more shares for retail investors than the entire average daily volume of the entire U.S. equities market in 2019. The visual background behind him couldn't have appeared more institutional. Off-white, with perfectly symmetric panels on the wall, above a matching, similarly off-white set of cabinets. Ken's suit was framed on either side by equidistant potted plants, 
leaves crawling down the sides like frightened vines. If potted plants could talk, these looked like they might scream or, at the very least, whimper. The entire visual effect was somewhere between a broadcast from the break room in a chiropractor's office and an infomercial shoot pawning some shady diabetes medicine. And as the hearing progressed from the opening statements into the Inquisition, it was obvious that Ken's patience would be taxed, perhaps beyond its usual limits. Although some of the questions were well-meaning, many seemed, unintentionally, designed to show how little the gathered congressional committee actually understood what it was that Citadel did, or how the financial system actually worked, or why dragging Ken in front of them was a waste of everyone's time. He was clearly playing a game they barely comprehended, in a field well above their areas of expertise. As Ken tried, as patiently as a man who definitely had not built a throne out of the bones of his competitors, to explain things like T plus two processing, competitive market maker spreads, and how Citadel Securities saved customers billions via best execution models, he could imagine most of his questioners shriveling away, like the plants behind him. The simple truth was, the technology had moved so fast, the financial system had grown so complex, that if you hadn't been on the inside every day for decades, you had very little chance of really grasping what a man like Ken did to keep the economy pumping along. It was akin to a time-traveling anthropologist from a highly complex civilization coming into contact with some ancient community. But it was the ancient community that was trying to decipher and translate the anthropologist's complex language, not the other way around. They simply wouldn't, and didn't, have the experience or the tools to understand. Which was probably why most of the ire and attacks were aimed at Vlad and Robin Hood, and only a handful of the congressmen and women felt brave enough to come at Ken. Vlad was an easy target, not just because he looked so accessible and inviting, like the kind of friendly, wide-eyed guy you might find volunteering to work the dunking booth at a traveling carnival. But what Robin Hood did, and had done, was so damn easy to understand. They put themselves out there in such simple terms. Hell, that was their business model. To simplify, make accessible, level, and yes, gamify things that were supposed to be prohibitively complex. So it was no surprise that when one of the congressional inquisitors, Representative Juan Vargas of California, finally did turn toward Ken, the congressman was jumping off from the simple narrative surrounding Robin Hood and its seeming betrayal of its user base. Did anyone in your organization since January 1st contact Robin Hood? But from Ken's reaction, it appeared to be the sort of foolish question he might have boiled an underling for asking. Are you asking if we've had contact with Robin Hood? And then he clarified, as if it needed clarification. We, of course, are talking to Robin Hood routinely in the ordinary course of business. We manage a substantial portion of their order flow. And when the congressman tried to tunnel down further to an actual accusation, did you talk to them about restricting or doing anything to prevent people from buying GameStop? Ken's response came back tinged with a vigor anyone who had ever met him and walked away with all four limbs still attached would have recognized. Let me be perfectly clear. Absolutely not. Ken was so adamant in his answer that he refrained from blinking for the next full beat, his visage so still that one might have wondered if his wireless had gone down. And for the most part, there was very little that was asked of him beyond that, that truly related to the events surrounding GameStop. When Representative Rashida Tlaib took her turn at Ken from the virtual podium, 
she didn't mention GameStop at all. As we all know, the wealthiest 10% own 84% of all stocks. In fact, 50% of American families own no stock at all. I say this to emphasize that to many of my residents, the stock market is simply a casino for the rich. And when you all screw up, the people end up paying the tab. From there, she segued right into a question about high-frequency trading, the computerized strategy of trading ahead of the market. But what she was asking about was so complex, it was impossible for Ken to even begin to answer in a way that might satisfy her. If anything, though she was making an important point about a tangentially related financial practice, the moment encapsulated how absurd it was for someone like Ken to even be called to a hearing like this. If Ken was on trial, which he clearly wasn't, he would have expected to be judged by a jury of his peers. But Ken Griffin and Citadel had no peers. During Representative Vargas's questioning, the congressman had scored what appeared to be a significant point when, before pressing Ken on his contact with Robin Hood, he'd asked, Mr. Griffin, how many people are in the room with you? And Ken had answered, There are five people, including myself. But the point the representative had thought he'd made, that Wall Street CEOs like Ken had teams of suits around them, protecting them, advising them, shielding them from foolish wastes of time like, say, pointless hearings, was only part of the equation. Ken had a team around him because what he did was so complex and complicated, it was almost impossible to separate him from the system surrounding him. By the end of the five-and-a-half-hour hearing, there was little doubt that the gathered congressmen and women were no closer to understanding what had really happened that week in January than they had been the day before. There was also no doubt that Ken was at the center of what had happened, because Ken and Citadel were at the center of just about everything that happened in the U.S. financial markets. But the questions asked of him illuminated very little, because either they weren't the right questions, or there were no right questions. Whether Citadel had actively pressured Robin Hood to restrict the buying of GameStop was an easy query for Ken to answer, because of course they hadn't. Why would they need to? Robinhood's clearing deposit requirements had made it impossible for Vlad's company to do anything else. Did payment for order flow necessitate conflicts of interest by turning Robinhood's users into their product? Theoretically, sure. But whose fault was that, really? Citadel? Who made money by providing Robinhood with the most efficient, cheapest trades? Robinhood, who also made money, but could thus give their customers the ability to trade for free? or the users themselves, who could also make money without ever paying a penny in commissions? Was high-frequency trading or trading ahead of the market something sketchy and dangerous and corruptible? Christ, almost certainly yes, but who the hell really understood what any of that meant anyway? The odds were, if you truly did understand it, you were probably doing it, not trying to come up with coherent questions to ask people like Ken. Maybe it would have been better to have kept things simple. Though a few of the representatives had danced around the subject, they could have asked Ken the only question that truly applied. Why exactly had he invested $2 billion in Melvin Capital, a hedge fund that had just lost half of its value in a matter of days? Even if you didn't call it a bailout, why would a man like Ken Griffin invest in a hemorrhaging hedge fund, no matter how much of a star Gabe Plotkin might be? Could Ken's rivalry with Steve Cohen have really been enough of an impetus to make Ken want to get into a fund 
in presumably favorable fashion, even though that fund had just exploded in such a public and perhaps existential way? Or was Ken propping up Melvin for some other reason? Was there something deeper going on? The conspiracy theorists were almost definitely wrong. As Ken had testified, he hadn't pressured Robinhood to restrict the buying of GameStop to save Melvin and the other short-selling hedge funds, and obviously, he hadn't needed to. Robinhood's clearance requirements made sure of that. But one might have asked, wouldn't Ken and Citadel have been fully aware of what these clearance requirements were going to be, and how Robinhood would have needed to react? Wouldn't Citadel have known, Thursday morning, January 28th, that Robinhood wouldn't be able to meet their deposit requirements without monkeying with the buy side of GameStop? If a firm like Citadel really was able to make money by trading ahead of the market, wasn't this a situation where a firm like Citadel would know what was about to happen ahead of the market? Wouldn't they have been able to use that knowledge, if they were so inclined, in numerous ways? Perhaps, if the right questions had been asked, or even if there were any right questions, Ken's presence at the hearing might have made sense. Ground, if not clarity, might have been gained, toward understanding the tendrils connecting GameStop, Melvin, Robinhood, and the system as a whole. But as it was, Ken's rarely blinking attendance seemed to have offered as much clarity as the two potted plants behind him. The truth was, from all appearances, the House Committee hadn't summoned Ken to answer questions about GameStop. They'd summoned him to prove to themselves that they still could. And he'd given them five and a half hours of his time, which was more, he might have felt, than this absurd moment in history deserved. Ken wasn't some kid with a cat poster and a magic eight ball sitting in some basement in some suburb of Boston. After all, he was the CEO of Citadel, and he had an economy to run. Chapter 28 And once again the camera flicked on. Thank you, Chairwoman Waters. I am happy to discuss with the committee my purchases of GameStop shares and my discussions of their fair value on social media. It is true that my investment in the company multiplied in value many times. For that, I feel enormously fortunate. I also believe the current price of the share demonstrates that I have been right about the company. The moment was somehow surreal and routine at the same time. Keith Gill at his desk in his basement, talking into his bright red streaming microphone while he sat in his Game of Thrones faux leather chair, the whiteboard was behind him, but now sporting nothing but his favorite cat poster, the kitten hanging from a paw, over the slogan, Hang in there. A few things I am not. I am not a cat. I am not an institutional investor, nor am I a hedge fund. But today, the red bandana was not tied around Keith's head. It was hanging from a corner of the poster, fully visible to the camera perhaps a nod to how significant he knew the event was. Another nod, his colorful t-shirts, so often sporting more cats or video game slogans, had been replaced by a stiffly ironed jacket and tightly tied tie. True, the jacket looked like it had just come out of the cleaner's bag, and the tie was so shiny, if you flipped it over, you might expect to find the price tag still attached. But there was no doubt, Keith was taking this seriously and though he didn't look as much like an awkward deer caught in the headlights as his counterpart, Gabe Plotkin, it was clear, as the old children's show used to say, 
one of these things is not like the other. I'm just an individual whose investment in GameStop and posts on social media were based upon my own research and analysis. The sense that he didn't really belong in the lineup of highly sophisticated professionals that had been called to the congressional hearing had been building since the list of witnesses had been made public. Vlad Tenev, Chief Executive Officer, Robinhood Markets, Incorporated. Kenneth C. Griffin, Chief Executive Officer, Citadel, LLC. Gabriel Plotkin, Chief Executive Officer, Melvin Capital Management, LP. Steve Huffman, Chief Executive Officer, Co-Founder, Reddit. Keith Gill. No job title, no impressive description, not even a friendly Brockton, Massachusetts. Just some dude named Keith Gill. Two important factors, based entirely on publicly available information, gave me confidence that GameStop was undervalued. First, the market was underestimating the prospects of GameStop's legacy business and overestimating the likelihood of bankruptcy. I grew up playing video games and shopping at GameStop, and I plan to continue shopping there. A dude who was still, despite the massive drop in the share price of GME since Robinhood had punched a hole in the short squeeze, worth close to $20 million, at least on paper. Second, I believe that GameStop has the potential to reinvent itself as the ultimate destination for gamers within the rapidly growing $200 billion gaming industry. Although Keith had temporarily paused his YOLO updates to deal with the growing fallout of what he'd, arguably, started, and he'd likewise taken time off YouTube to be with his family and shield himself from a level of attention that even someone who had once aspired to a career in professional sports could not have imagined, his thesis hadn't changed. Nor had his belief in GameStop dimmed. If it hadn't been for the media attention, he would very likely have been right where he was professing his love for GME to the camera, with or without a congressional audience. When I wrote and spoke about GameStop on social media with other individual investors, our conversations were no different from people in a bar or on a golf course or at home talking or arguing about a stock. Because he still believed, and would always believe, that professing your love for a company like GameStop was as right, fair, legal, and really as American as the stock market itself. As he put it in his own words, as he neared the end of his opening statement to the House Committee, to the millions who might be watching the live stream, and to the faces of the other players in the drama that had unfolded, Gabe Plotkin, Vlad Tenet, Ken Griffin, whom he was meeting for the first time, the fact that he had been communicating via social media platforms, rather than standing at the head of a boardroom in a Wall Street office or over Zoom to a team of analysts or portfolio managers, didn't make any difference. The idea that I used social media to promote GameStop stock to unwitting investors and influence the market is preposterous. As if Keith Gill, one-time near four-minute miler, son of a truck driver and an RN, a guy who'd spent most of his adult life unemployed or barely employed, could have tricked anyone into buying GME. My posts did not cause the movement of billions of dollars into GameStop shares, as if Keith Gill could have personally caused a revolution that had nearly taken down one of the biggest hedge funds on Wall Street. It was a ridiculous, insane notion. A revolution like that came from somewhere much deeper than some gathering of apes and retards on some subreddit in the basement of the internet. A revolution like that came from something much deeper even than the deep, 
deep, deep fucking research of some dude in his basement, some kid from Brockton. And when Keith had finally finished his testimony, when he'd finally made it through the five and a half hours of the hearing, barely answering a handful of questions during the event because really, who was he anyway? He turned off his camera, glanced at the comments flashing one after another down Wall Street Bet's board, and then shifted back to his trading account. As he looked at that beautiful ticker, GME, multiplied 50,000 times, once for each share he still held, he knew what he needed to do next. Buy more. Because, well, even after everything, he just really liked the stock. Chapter 29 540 Madison Avenue, 32nd floor. A stone's throw from Gabe Plotkin's Melvin Capital, five buildings over and ten floors up. A similar glass and steel office, also empty and quiet and dark. Another ghost ship floating in the sea of vacant skyscrapers, picture windows like portholes looking out over a vista that mostly remained cold and dead. Another near lifeless hub the heart of a cadaver that, like Melvin, somehow still had that functioning circulatory system, veins and capillaries reaching out like spokes to temporary offices and second-hand homes all over the world. Richard Marshall, CEO of Senvest Management, in one of those temporary offices, in one of those second homes, leaned back from his computer and let the tension finally drain from his face, neck, and shoulders. Usually, his appearance was well-coiffed and precise. But at the moment, he was disheveled. His hair was a mess, and one of the buttons of his shirt had worked itself free. His left sleeve was rolled up too far, and his suit jacket had fallen off the back of his chair to the floor. But he didn't give a damn. He looked like he'd just been through a war, which made sense, because what he'd just experienced was as near a financial equivalent to pitched combat as one could get a profound career-changing experience, but unlike his counterpart centered five buildings over, Richard hadn't lost the fight. Quite the opposite. His victory was so extreme, it would go down in the annals of Wall Street as one of the best trades anyone had ever made. Unlike many of his Wall Street counterparts, Richard wasn't a financial celebrity. Mashal was far from a household name, and even in the rarefied world of hedge funds, he wasn't particularly well-known. Part of this anonymity was by choice. Richard and his CIO, Brian Gonick, had made little effort to mingle with the hedge fund set, even as their own shop had grown from a tiny $5 million seed in the early 90s, primarily from friends and family, to a still relatively small but totally respectable $2 billion pre-pandemic valuation. Given their firm's unique investment profile, their standoffishness was little surprise. The contrarian approach to public equities wasn't for everyone, seeking out and investing in unappreciated, dismissed, misunderstood, and yes, unloved stocks was inherently risky. Putting money into companies that most other funds were avoiding, or betting against, was a volatile strategy that yielded a balance sheet that never ran in a straight line. There were down quarters, down years, but when Richard and his team picked correctly, the gains could be impressive. As a contrarian investor, you didn't need to be right often, because when you were, it was explosive. Richard's tendency to swim against the current probably had to do with his background. He'd grown up in Montreal, not New York. His father was an entrepreneur, 
who'd made part of his fortune by bringing to Canada the miniature, ubiquitous, anti-shoplifting tags found attached to the sleeves and linings of clothes in most retail stores around the world. After Wharton and the University of Chicago, Richard had returned to Canada to focus on the public equity arm of the family business, which then morphed into his fund, Senvest Management, named after his father's Sensormatic security tags. With its headquarters firmly planted in New York, the financial capital of the world. Though over the next decade, some of Senvest's most notable wins might have been on the short side, in particular, a short position on Insys Therapeutics, a biomedical company that allegedly had pushed a synthetic form of fentanyl through shady, kickback-driven relationships with corrupt physicians. Richard and Brian had always been more interested in identifying diamonds in the rough, companies that the rest of Wall Street had turned their backs on, but still had the potential for transformation. And when Senvest went long, they didn't tend to sit on the sidelines, watch the stock ticker, and pray. They liked to get involved. When they bought shares, they considered themselves part owners of the company, and they regularly engaged with management, trying to push them in the direction that would be beneficial for everyone. When Richard, Brian, and the Senvest team had stumbled onto GameStop in early September of last year, the stock had been trading in the $6 to $7 range. And for what seemed like good reason, the world was rapidly going digital, while GameStop was mired in the physical. Stores, game cartridges, and discs, plastic consoles. Management, too, appeared to be anachronistically myopic, unable to take advantage of the natural advantages the company might have in the rapidly booming gaming space. It was no wonder the stock had such a huge short volume. Anyone who'd ever cracked a business textbook could smell the melting ice cube from a thousand miles away. But Richard and Brian saw something else, too. Similar to what Michael Burry had observed, Microsoft and PlayStation were about to launch new versions of their gaming devices, physical consoles, which had to be bought somewhere, not downloaded through the magic of the internet. And second, and perhaps more important, there was Ryan Cohen, the e-commerce genius who had bested Amazon in the multi-billion dollar online pet supply domain, throwing his money into the stock, and further, throwing himself into the fray with his angry letter to the GameStop board. To the Senvest team, these seemed like two positive indicators in that ocean of red that transformation wasn't the wild bet it might seem. Added to that, the crazy short volume, at the time already touching 100% of the float. This in itself was attractive. All those short sellers needed to borrow the shares they wanted to sell from someone, and a fund like Senvest could make a pretty steady return lending out those shares. So, the decision was made, and Richard's team began to buy. Quietly at first, because the last thing a fund wanted anyone to know was that they were buying shares in what they saw as an undervalued stock. Little by little, they picked up shares, starting with a small enough position that it wouldn't impact the market. A 2% position, which became 3%. And the more confident Richard and Brian became that they were on to something real, the deeper they stuck their feet into the churning water. When they hit 5% of the stock, they were required to file their position with the SEC, notifying the public what they were up to. But still, somehow, their interest remained mostly under the radar, perhaps because by then, the business media had become distracted by the drama unfolding between the Wall Street bets mob and Melvin, a little Montreal-born fund named after an anti-shoplifting tag 
couldn't possibly compete with such a movie-ready, David versus Goliath narrative. By the time the stock began really popping, Senvest had acquired around 7% of the available shares. It wasn't quite the investment that Ryan Cohen had put into the company, but it was enough to suddenly have a voice with management. And, as was their fashion, Richard and his team immediately went to work trying to push the company toward the transformation they believed was possible. Through the end of 2020 and into the beginning of January, they did their best to convince the GameStop board to stop battling with Cohen and bring him inside. Although Senvest had already doubled, then tripled their investment, they knew with Cohen helping to call the shots, GameStop might truly have a shot at becoming an e-commerce giant rather than an aging brick-and-mortar dinosaur. When the news hit on January 11th that management had heeded their suggestions and Cohen was officially joining the board of the company, Richard had known that the fuse had officially been lit. As the stock began to fly into the $30 by January 13th, the $40 a day later, it was clear Senvest was sitting on a huge win. The question became, how long could they ride that wave? It was perhaps the most difficult part of investing knowing when to accept that you'd won. From Richard's position on the other side of the trade, he could only guess at what Gabe Plotkin and Melvin's thinking was, as they watched the stock rising. They'd originally shorted the company at around $40 a share, and had rode their own winning wave all the way down to $5. They could have walked away with a fortune, and instead, inscrutably, they'd ridden it all the way back up to $40 and beyond, and still, apparently, had been doubling down. Richard did not intend to make the same mistake. The short squeeze in full effect by the beginning of the week of January 25th, he prepared his trading team to accept their win. Picking the moment to exit a stock was as much an art as it was a science. But in this particular case, at the height of this particular war, that moment hit Richard like it had been fired from an enemy's ship cannon. Elon Musk's tweet, Game stonk, at 4.08 on the afternoon of January 26th, which sent the stock spiraling higher, destroying whatever short positions were still standing and triggering the chaos that would ensue soon after. Via Robin Hood, Citadel, and whoever else the conspiracy theory of the day decided to implicate, was as clear a signal as Richard could have ever asked for. Peak momentum, he told his traders. And right there, they began the process of unloading the bulk of their shares. Beginning in the pre-market the next morning, the stock was all over the map. But Richard's team, spread out at desks in cities all over the country, sold into the frenzy at a dizzying pace. Richard and Brian orchestrating via email and text and Zoom. And by that afternoon, it was done. Senvest had sold all their shares, at a profit of upwards of $700 million. All of it on a single trade. In normal times, under normal circumstances, they would have spent the rest of the day celebrating. Champagne corks flying, music blaring, dancing on desks, maybe a kicked-over Bloomberg terminal or two. Instead, Richard Marshall sat alone at his desk. Later, he'd go for a long bike ride on the beach, perhaps start planning a company trip to Park City for skiing, the first time most of them would see each other since the pandemic had overtaken their lives. And as he sat there, his mind was already thinking ahead, to what his company's next move might be. When everything had been going crazy, before they'd exited their position, one of Richard's younger traders had once pointed out to him that, on the Reddit boards, 
the amateur traders liked to call profits tendies. 700 million was probably the whole damn chicken. Even so, the funny thing was, when something tasted that good, even when you ate a lot of it, it didn't make you feel full. It just made you hungry for more. After. On February 19th, one day after the congressional hearing on the short squeeze that rocked the world, Keith Gill posted his first YOLO update on Wall Street bets in over two weeks. According to the screenshot attached to the post, Keith had added an exclamation point to his testimony, putting more of his money behind his unwavering belief that GameStop was at the beginning of its journey into the digital age and not nearing the end. Despite the fact that the price of GME had plummeted from its highs of near $500 a share after Robinhood's actions had arguably put a lid on the WSB-powered short squeeze to the low $40, Keith had announced, through his post, that he was as bullish as ever. Doubling his stake to 100,000 shares of the stock, in addition to $1.5 million in call options. If the price action of GME in the weeks and months that followed Keith's post told us anything, it's that Keith was not alone in his love for the stock. Though the price remained stable in the $40 for the next few days, by the end of the week, GME was skyrocketing again. The impetus for the sudden climb, from a close of around $45 a share on Wednesday, February 23rd, to a staggering high of day $142.90 on February 26th is still unclear, though it probably had a number of causes. Keith's continued support rallying the WSB faithful, which by that time was closing in on a dizzying 10 million subscribers. The resignation of GameStop's CFO, Jim Bell, which may have represented a shift in forward strategy to more align with the digital dreams for the company of Ryan Cohen and his supporters and a cryptic tweet by Cohen himself, which landed on Twitter at 1.57 p.m. on the 24th, consisting of a photo of a McDonald's ice cream cone along with a frog emoji. Though Cohen didn't include an explanation along with the photo, many assumed he was telling the world that he intended to fix GameStop the way McDonald's had set out to fix its famously unreliable ice cream machines. Whatever the initial reason, the GME roller coaster was back on its tracks. Over the next 12 weeks, the stock price swung as high as $283 and continued its volatile seesawing as more news continued to feed the narrative that GameStop had finally seen the light and was going to try to change its fundamentals to coincide more clearly with its suddenly skyrocketing valuation. To that end, the company sold 3.5 million shares of its stock, raising over $500 million, to lower its debt and invest in an online-focused future. GameStop CEO George Sherman announced that he was stepping down to a reported payout of $179 million, a happy accident of the rocketing stock price rather than being performance-related in a traditional sense. While Ryan Cohen was named chairman, signifying management's intent to use the moment to its advantage as they took direct aim at turning GameStop into the e-commerce gargantuan Keith Gill had always believed it could be. At the moment of this writing, the stock still sits at a healthy $159.48, putting the company's valuation at well over $11 billion. It remains to be seen whether this valuation is somehow reasonable. If Keith Gill is right, if GameStop can make good on its new mission to become the Amazon of video games, rather than a brick-and-mortar throwback like Blockbuster, 
Or if the short sellers had been prescient all along, and the smoke and mirrors of this shared Reddit-inspired delusion will eventually dissipate, and the stock will plummet back to earth. But the bigger question might be, does it really matter what GameStop management does? Will the company's fundamentals, any company's fundamentals, have any bearing on its stock price in the world we are moving toward, where a group of amateurs on social media can move markets? Where a well-constructed tweet, or a particularly humorous meme, or an inspiring YOLO post can shift billions of dollars into a company's valuation? In such a post-GameStop revolutionary future, is there really such a thing as a melting ice cube anymore? Or is every stock now, maybe the market itself, more like an untethered balloon? When you stick a pin in a balloon, it doesn't plummet toward the ground. It fires off at odd angles, sometimes shooting up to extreme heights, spinning and spiraling and seesawing, until it eventually runs out of air. Then it might drift back to the ground. Or it might defy ration and reason and get caught in a stiff breeze and rise up and up forever. We hope you have enjoyed this Hachette audio production of The Anti-Social Network, The GameStop Short Squeeze, and the ragtag group of amateur traders that brought Wall Street to its knees. Written by Ben Mesrick. Read by Fajr Alcasey. Produced by Lisa Khan. Recorded at Audio Media Production, New York. Post-production by A1 Sound Productions. The Anti-Social Network is available in print and digital formats from Grand Central Publishing, a division of Hachette Book Group. For more Hachette Audio productions, visit us at hachetteaudio.com. Thank you for listening. Text copyright 2021 by Mezco Incorporated. Audio production copyright 2021, Hachette Audio. All rights reserved. Hachette Book Group supports the right to free expression and the value of copyright. The purpose of copyright is to encourage writers and artists to produce the creative works that enrich our culture. The duplicating, uploading, and distribution of this audiobook without permission is a theft of the author's intellectual property. If you would like permission to use material from the audiobook, other than for review purposes, please contact permissions at hbgusa.com. Thank you for your support of the author's rights.